Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. All right. Salam. How are you, man? Salam. Good. How are you? It's good to talk to you. You know, it's been a long time coming because we've been following each other, I think, for a while, and I've always thought we really have this guy. And uh, <laughs> um, so, so I think, I think I proposed the idea, but I think maybe both of us felt like we should do something together. For sure. For sure. Um, specifically around poetry. So, Persian poetry, especially because I think both of us have a certain love for it but you've you've been doing such a great job and, I, and I you're too kind who better to who better to explain a lot of the questions that i have around um, the persian form of poetry the wazo and just history of it and, and the, just talk about it because sure. i think a lot of people will be interested to see how it's developed what it is because you know i didn't know this until recently but there's a very strict order to the wazo and yep. if you don't know it I think you can just think it's just like English poetry, which I don't think follows the same rules, but there's certain syllables and metering mm-hmm, that follows certainly. But it's not the same thing, but it's incredible. Um, so anyway, that's that, that's the kind of thing I wanted to talk about. For sure, for sure. So I, I, we can begin talking about the origins of, we can say Islamic poetry. It's not a perfect word to describe it, but poetry written by Muslims. As we know it, it began in the Arabian Peninsula, all of the forms that we're familiar with, the Ghazal, the Masnavi, the Robai, most of those can be traced back there. And the period of Jahali poetry, Arabs call it, which is literally means the age of ignorance poetry, but basically before Islam. There were a lot of poets, and they factored into the development of Islam. The Quran mentions them. There is, I'm pretty sure there's a hadith about them. They, they factored into kind of the milieu of uh, the Prophet's time, and things like that. So as Islam spread... And the Arabic language and Arabic writing spread to what became known as the Muslim world. Muslims began to learn Arabic and read and write poetry. And then eventually they started to write it in their own languages. So the early poets began, so we can say Attar, Rumi, things like that. The really old poets began by really reading Ibn Arabi and all the other Arabic poets. And eventually they started to write in Persian, but using what they had learned from Arabic poetry. So the modern Iranians have this complex against Arabs. They might not like that. But essentially, our poetic tradition owes its existence to the Islamic and the Arabic poetic tradition. So you had these people... Go ahead. Yeah, so is it... Just from my reading of it, it came from the 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 Qasida, right? The Qasida, yeah, Burda, yeah. that's now famous one. But that's, that was the Arabic tradition, right? Yeah. That then, I think, I think when I was reading about this, if you if you look at the um, uh, the, the particular share, the first two lines or of a, of a kasid, I think it broke down into a more briefer version, and that formed that kind of morphed into the the ghazal or the Persian. Definitely, but the whole thing Definitely. started from um, talking about either you know from a religious perspective. I think it broke into the Persian, but Persians held their own. They completely yeah, transformed definitely. it. So there's a definitely a bit of Arab yeah. Persian thing going on, but. Um, but yeah, go on. No, so it's, I'm, it's I'm, beautiful. So interesting. No, it's it's a, it's a good observation. So the Arabs handed us what they had, and then we did something to it, and then we took it to South Asia. We'll get to that later. That's the towards the end of the, the historical conversation. But then we took it to South Asia, and then South Asia took it and did its own thing with it. So I think this is it's be- this beautiful Muslim civilization we have, where we pick something up from somewhere, and then we add something to it, and then someone else picks it up and adds another thing to it. But you're completely right. So they gave us their poetic forms, the Arabs. And we kind of did our own thing. People like Saadi are considered kind of the grandfather 
of the Ghazal, he added uh, some conventions and some themes, not not just technical conventions, let's say, but some themes that really made the Ghazal uh, what it is as we know it. He he's one of the probably the, one of the most prolific and well known Muslim writers, and his writing became so uh, so well liked that it became the standard for Persian education. So if you were joining like a madrasa education system, which is what we had before colonization, almost in the whole Muslim world. Whether you were in the Balkans or in Bengal, as you say, the Balkans, the Bengal thing, you were reading Saadi's Golistan to, to learn Persian. And then you would read his, read his Ghazals. What's a Ghazal? Quick question. So, okay. Don't know. <laughs> so a Ghazal is one of the forms of Persian poetry, but it's definitely the best known, uh, the most liked, the most you can find the most poetry in it. It's There's some other forms like Qasida, the Mathnawi, the Robai, they all have their own kind of place. So the Qasida tends to be for stories and the Mathnavi kinds of, kind of tends to be used to tell stories, usually with a moral. So if you read uh, Rumi's, Molana Rumi's biggest uh, or most famous work, the, the Mathnavi and Manavi, it's all in the Masnavi format. And it's just called the Masnavi because it's considered the best one. And it's just for telling short stories, essentially. The Ghazal literally comes from the Arabic... Uh, three-letter root qazala, which means to flirt. So modern Arabs would say, huwa yaqazal, he flirts. So it, it, it's a love poem, wow. essentially. And it kind of took on other meanings, you know, Sufism and lamenting sadness and things like that. But the, the idea is that it's supposed to be about love. And generally the poet will have a beloved or someone that they're yearning for. And it's really open to interpretation who that is, whether it's romantic or it's godly or it's a mix of, mix of both. It's really up to who the poet is and how you read them. It's a poetic form where each poem is made up of a bait, which I think it's called a couplet in English. It's two lines. And it'll generally have five to 15 couplets. That, that tends to be the case. You very, very rarely see one with less than five. And again, very rarely see one with more than 15, usually about 10. And the poem begins with what's called a matla, which it's the opening line of poetry. And every other couplet has to follow that same rhyme and that same meter. So to explain what rhyme and meter is, if you read a Muslim poem, or if you hear it played out or sung, every line has an internal rhyme with the next line. So for example, Maulana Rumi's Mathnawi begins with, Bishnoin nei cho hekayat mikonad. As but if you kind of tap to that, you can definitely hear the song in there. Bishno as Bishno in nei chon hekoyat mi konad. As jodai ha shekoyat mi konad. Kaz neyestan ta maro bebori da and. And if you go to any line in the book, maybe save for some copying errors, every single line will have the same rhythm. And that's called that's called the wazen or the weight. All these, there's, I think there may be about a hundred of them that I've that I've learned about or read about in studies, and there, most of them came from the Arab world, and they all have uh, Arabic names, which reflects that, and th their names are very odd. Uh, I guess I could just like pick one up from uh, from Ganjur to give you an idea of, of what the names sound like. So I picked a random Hafiz poem, and it says Wazen Mufa'ilin 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 Hazaj Muthman Salam. So that's just like the name of one Wazen. But anyway, so every line has the same wasn't the same the same poetic uh, sound to it. So even if you didn't understand the language, you could hear the rhythm within the line. So that that's the first thing. The second thing is the rhyme. So every matla, which is the first two lines of poetry, has to end in the same rhyme. So again, I'll just pick a random 
uh, Hafez Ghazal, for example, like we can go to the very first one. And that's the Aleph, the Ha Aleph, so the H A. Yeah. So that's the first two lines. And then the third line and the fifth line and the seventh line don't have to end with that same rhyme, but they have to keep the meter. So he says, See, this doesn't end in a ha. But then the next line, And then skip two lines, So that's another rule in the genre. And they're going. That's that's, that's yeah. so interesting because so the first two lines set the tone, the they set the metering, the rhythm, the syllables, mm-hmm. and then after that, each single each single uh, the second line of each couplet needs to end with the same. With exactly, the rhyme, right? and that's, that's kind of what yeah. gives it the rhyme, and, yeah. and what makes it so beautiful, really. And then, so that's those are the main rules. Now at the very end, most poets uh, do this practice called tachalos, and the last line where that happens is called, if I'm not mistaken, Mukhallasa or Makta. And that is where the poet refers to themselves. It's almost like signing off where you, you know, in modern poem, you might see like a dash Hafez or something like that, or you're a poet, dash Zerar, dash Sharqi, something like that. But in these Ghazal forms, you're supposed to refer to yourself in the poem. And some poets... So what's... Yeah. So that makes it more... Because I, I, I remember reading that as a young, as a young reader and thinking... There's such an ego element of egotistic yeah. to it, you know, like, because I read, no, it's true, right? Like, yeah, imagine, yeah. imagine Shakespeare referring to himself in his sonnets. Um, it's yeah, not, yeah. A, it's not something they would do, but we do it in such an intimate way because I think the last, the last makta, the last couplet, is where you just become more intimate and you exactly, just either yeah. lower yourself, right? Because most of his poems are about lowering yourself. Yeah, in yeah, the case exactly. Of, of the, so but, it's not you saying. I'm great, and sometimes they do say I'm great, yeah. but often it's to self-reflect on your own mm-hmm. shortcomings. But you mention your name. Um, I really like that part. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the Hafiz is definitely good at does this a lot, but most poets I've seen they tend to use it either to make a joke about themselves or to wrap up the lesson. So, for example, if Hafiz spends a poem writing about you know how upset he is uh, by his lover. The last line will be something like, oh, Hafez, you know, don't be sad. Uh, lovers will always do this. There's a one really good one in this uh, this poem you posted one time on your story. My lover hasn't sent a note, which it's essentially, I won't read the whole thing, but it's Hafez uh, complaining about, you know, not unrequited love, essentially. And then Hafez ends up by saying, Hafez, behave yourself, for you can't lament if from a king to a servant a letter isn't sent. So someone like Hafez usually uses the tachalos as a as a as a way to essentially talk himself down or lower his status. Not every poet is like this. I think this is one of the the Saadi conventions that really made this a thing. Some poets don't have a tachalos in their ghazal, especially the earlier ones. Maulana Rumi, uh, especially, he's I've never seen a tachalos from him, and this is actually a way that I detect forged poems as if the tachalos includes Rumi or Maulana or something. The only time I've seen him tachalos is he does it for his peer, Shams Tabriz. So he'll say Shams al Tabriz or A Tabriz or A Shams or something like that. But definitely Hafiz in almost every poem, he does a tachalos. He does it. Because yeah. I've noticed that with I've noticed that with Saadi and um and Athar and Hafiz, but I've never I've never noticed that. What's the thing is I don't really read Mulana Rumi, but mm-hmm. that's a different conversation. But that's mm-hmm. interesting to know when I do start reading his work. Um, it kind of maybe tells you about his station too, right? His position, yeah. because 
because Molana Rumi is not is not like Hafez and yeah, and, they're definitely and very different. There's a there's a whole different world world behind who they For are. Sure, but, yeah. but this is this this definitely happens in in Walid and and Muhammad Iqbal. They do this, so they've taken that um, Persian tradition and brought it to the subcontinent as well. Definitely, That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, it's, it's really beautiful, and I think it's a cool way of of signing off from a poem, including yourself, but also taking a time taking the time to kind of talk down to yourself a bit, humble yourself. So I've been reading your um, Instagram page where you write your own poetry. I think you need to start doing that more. I You're think you should start. I should, yeah, I should do that. <laughs> Referring so, to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I try to do that just, when I write when I write ghazals. And I, th- I think it's a good way, again, to wrap up the poem and also kind of take a, a small shot at yourself. You, you mentioned something interesting. You mentioned Atar Saadi, Rumi Hafez. I think maybe we should go in a little bit and, and talk about them just a bit, you know, give, give kind of a, a background on who they are. Because I know that Rumi and Hafiz are really well known, but sadly these days, Saadi and Attar and stuff, a lot of people don't know about them. Okay, let's do it. For sure. Okay. And I think it also helps to kind of understand the development of, of this genre. So if we want to, you know, towards the end of this conversation, talk about how it ended up in South Asia, it's, I think it's cool to talk about the development or it's important to understand this. So some of the earlier poets, so let's say Attar and the five, we can say that there's five really famous Persian poets who are considered like the five in, I could say the Iranian tradition. Uh, and that's Attar, Maulana, Saadi, Hafez. And the fifth person tends to vary. It really depends on who you ask. Some people say Khayyam is their fifth guy. Uh, some people will pick someone else. Maybe some people like Baba Tahir or Iraqi or something like that. But there's about four or five that are considered like the, the dudes, so to speak, in this genre. And of those that I mentioned, Attar was the earliest. He kind of emerged in this Sufi context in the eastern end of, of what we consider Persia historically. And his poetry is very Sufi influenced. He has a lot of ghazals and he also has the Conference of the Birds, Mantal Tair, which it's a, it's a big Sufi treatise. And when Rumi was young, so Rumi was born in, in what is modern-day Afghanistan, but his family travels to modern-day Syria and then Turkey. Rumi and Attar actually met each other when when uh, Rumi was really young. I think he might have been in, no in his early really? teens. Yeah, yeah, this is not this is not a very well-known meeting. So they met each other. So Rumi's father, I think his name was Sultan Valad, he, he took him to meet Attar because he was like this, you know, this sage Sufi guy. And he was in his old age. I think he might have been like 80 at the time. And he met Rumi and he said, this kid will become something one day. He, uh, he really, you know, recognized his genius. And I think that's amazing, the fact that he, that he saw that in him at such a young age. So let's see what the died. So died 1221 and Rumi. It's funny, I googled Rumi and the first pictures of Leo DiCaprio. I wish no, I was joking. No, we don't talk about that. That's, that's, that's a plague upon Google. I don't know why they haven't fixed that, right? So, so let's see. Rumi was born in 1207 and Attar died in 1221. So Rumi met him when he was like 11 or 12. And Attar, you know, amazingly, Radhi Alanu, I recognize his genius, so to speak. So, because I've read, I've read in Rumi's work um, um, references to... Wait, sorry, in the, the other way around. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've read... Um, um, Athar being referenced even even by Rumi is that right? For sure, that that would make sense. I mean, these everyone emerges in the context of someone else. So when Rumi was coming, Atar was was the guy, and you can definitely see the parallels between them. Their styles are similar. The way they write, the way it reads, you could almost possibly. I mean, not maybe not, but you could think they were. You could confuse poems from one for the other if you weren't looking so closely. They they write in a very similar style, and. They, they have this kind of Sufi yearning for the beloved. 
And then that's kind of the style that, that Rumi was going in. So a lot of people, you know, mistakenly think that, that he's kind of like a Tarab poet, like he's just writing, you know, wine songs that some poets have. But he's really deep down. He's just yearning for God, yearning for his peer and or his sheikh, his, his Sufi leader, uh, Shams of Tabriz. And that's kind of the context that we find him in. And then a little later goes by, not a little later, I think about a century goes by, and then Saadi comes along. Now Saadi is, a, as we'd say in Persian, he's a bit more shaytun, you know, he likes to, he likes to be a little bit funny and, and push some buttons and test some limits. So he does have a lot of this, you know, Sufi poetry about the Prophet and, you know, Sufi metaphors, and he writes a Gulistan and Bustan that are kind of like the Mathnavi, they have a lot of lessons about Sufism and Islam and, and talks about Sharia, and he has is using his teaching in Nizami and Baghdad. So he definitely was, you know, a heavyweight scholar. But he also wrote some of this like love poetry that was testing the waters a bit, moving towards not just divine love, but human love. So this isn't really that well known, but Saadi has a, a section of his divan that you can't even find in some divans now. You have to ask for, for the unedited one, where he has some pretty racy poetry that's about human love. And he definitely does have, again, prophetic love, like poems about the Ahlul Bayt and the Prophet and about divine love. But he also tested the waters and wrote some human love poems. And he has all kinds of jokes and kind of pushed some limits in his writing, so to speak. And then Hafiz emerged. Just, yeah. just one thing to add to that. Um, um, so Saadi, just before we move over him, the, one of the reasons I really like him in, in modern day Persian today is his influence has continued, right, in, yeah. in a different way to, to Atar or, or Hafiz. For sure, for sure. He wrote, he wrote much more simply yeah. compared to other poets. They so say, his stuff they is say. more accessible. Yeah. It's read by children. You use it to learn basic poetry, Persian poetry or storytelling. Exactly, yeah. And, and he's also one of the most traveled poets because for sure, yeah. a lot of these poets didn't leave. Like I think Hafiz never left. Yeah, that's famously known. He right? never left Shiraz. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. And meanwhile, Arthur was traveling the Muslim world. I think he did. I think he did the yeah. Hajj pilgrimage, and then Saadi went um, everywhere. Saadi, yeah, and then he was in Nizami, which is, which is not to glance over that quickly because yeah. that's a huge deal. That was yeah. that was the Harvard, Brown, MIT yeah, combined. Yeah. I mean, that was the place to be. Yeah, that's where um, the Golden Age happened. He emerged right after you know it was starting to decline a bit. But yeah, he was there. He was the, he was there, and that's and that's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he. On. His poetry is really worldly. You can, I mean, especially the, at the time, the average person definitely could not really travel, maybe outside of the village or town, let alone go to Morocco or something. But he has poems about the Maghreb and going to Egypt, Masar, and going to modern-day Lebanon. He didn't refer to Lebanon, but going to Baalbek and, and things like that. Uh, being in the Arabian Peninsula, being in, even all the way to India. I mean, he went to, it's called Somnat, uh in Persian Arabic. I think it's Somnath in, in modern English. But he even went, made it all the way to the eastern ends of India and wrote about his encounters with, I mean, what he called idol worshippers, what we'd say today is Hindus. And he, you know, met, um, I think, Amazigh and Berber tribes and Arab tribes and all kinds of crazy stuff. So he really wrote a worldly experience, so to speak, in, in his two travelogue books, the Bustan and Gulistan. Yeah, okay. And he has That's tons of, and his poetry, I remember me and my dad were in a taxi in Shiraz once on the way to visit his grave. And the poet says, you know, I don't really like Saadi. His his work is bantomboni, which it's like Persian slang for it's a, it's it's like pants uh, elastic. Like it's it's not a big deal, you know. It's it's basic. But yeah. I think that's the beauty of Saadi's. They call it like a latife, like a small little nice thing. He writes these 
little plays on words that really have this beautiful lesson. And he's really like that. He's kind of like a grandfather figure giving you advice about life in a way. He, he is. And if you, so he's buried in Shiraz, yeah. for those who don't know as well. And if you go to Shiraz, his, his tomb really is unfortunately the afterthought, right? You go to yeah, Hafiz sadly. first. And then you, and then you may go to Saadi. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, I think that's so telling and how they've both, and how time has, has, um, has judged both of them, yeah. right? It's, it's just so, it's just. Um, it used to be the opposite, it's, it's you know, interestingly. Up until uh, the last century, Saadi was by far more read than Hafiz. You can find way more manuscripts of Saadi laying around the Muslim world or that have been, you know, this is your area of expertise, of course. So I want to talk about that, that have been clawed up and vultured by the, the colonists or purchased by, you know, purchased from collapsing uh, governments. But, I mean, there's so many Saadi manuscripts. Just, they're abound everywhere. He was the guy in Persian poetry. If you wanted to be, you know, an educated Muslim, you read Saadi's Golestan. You learned Persian from Saadi's Golestan. And, I mean, his sayings are all over the place in the Persianite world. And in South Asia and the Arab world, they've been translated into the respective native languages. And people say them. He was the guy. But Isn't isn't his, one of his couplets on the New York um, headquarters as well? Yeah, yeah, it is. uh, it's Bani Adam Azai Yek Digaran Kaz of Farinesh Zeg Goharan Chobedar Dovarad Ozvi Ruzegor Digaros Honamonat Keror Tokaz Mehnata Adamo Bikami and Nashoyad Nomat Adami, something like that. So it's basically saying like human beings are all from one essence and whole. And they're all they're all parts of the same body. And if one one piece of the body comes to pain, then uh, the other ones something in English was like uh, standing won't remain. So it's, it's about like the yeah. beauty of humanity. He he really, I mean, it's it's hard to travel and encounter people and, and come back, you know, not with that conclusion. So he he really is a beautiful poet. But now, sadly, because of what's happening uh, in the Middle East with this clash between secularism and Islamism and people, you know, being uh, affected by this deluge of Islamophobic propaganda that's being translated and spread in the Middle East, people don't like Saadi because they consider him too much of a sheikh. I mean, they call him sheikh. You know, Musallah al-Din, Shirazi. And he has innumerable poets, you know, praising the Prophet, praising the Ahl al-Bayt, praising the Quran. Uh, if you read the Golestan, like the intro is just about talking about like how much he, he's religious and how Islam is a great religion and how Muhammad so this is So this is what's interesting because Rumi is also like this. But Malana Rumi has been cleansed, if you right. want to say cleansed, <laughs> yes, exactly. right? But, but Saudi right Saudi didn't make the cut because Saudi just doesn't have the... Doesn't have the yeah, what yeah. it is? I mean, is there? Is it? He just didn't. He didn't. Strike I love the, right the way you put that. He didn't make the cut. Yeah, he didn't make the draft in the in the modernity. Because because, because this is like this is this this historic analysis is really interesting, right? Because yeah, yeah. Because Mulana Rumi did, and and Saudi didn't, and the thing with Hafiz, yeah. and, and and I think there's a, there's definitely some element of modern Iranians having that um, almost almost resistance to the Islamization of of their own history, but. Um, but you know, with Hafiz, I think I think he became popular in the last hundred and twenty, thirty years. That's because definitely I think there was true. A local yeah. Governor, I think there's a local governor of Shiraz who who stumbled upon his work and just became a huge fan. He he cleaned up his 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 gardens. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in nineteen ten, I think a French architect was brought in to redesign the entire shrine. And before that, yeah, yeah, Hafiz today. So that's it a, used to be a. Overgrown like weed and no a hundred percent. So th- that's another conversation. So we should we should actually go into that. That's a great uh, window view open. So essentially, Saudi didn't make the cut as you really. Uh, you did a great job. I love that saying. You didn't make the cut in the modernity of uh, of Iran or the Muslim world. 
So people kind of forgot about him. I mean, he still is definitely well-read and, and Sufis love him and, and people who are into Persian poetry know about him. But Hafiz has really captured the hearts of people. So Hafiz emerges about 80 years after Saadi and he kind of comes in this time where what Saadi, Atar, and Rumi did had, had been done already. They'd done it as much as anyone could do it. I mean, they have respectively... 4,000 or so Ghazals a person, you know, Atar and, and Rumi, if I'm not mistaken. So as much as someone could conceivably write about Persian poetry, they had they had written it. So Hafiz emerges in this period of kind of this, this religiosity has, you know, we, we say he had it up to, uh, he had it up to his throat, we could say. So he decided to, to buck that and kind of push the limits almost in the way that Saadi pushed the limits by writing a lot about human love or, or being in love with a person like Ishkhama Jazi, as we would say, fake love, not like the real divine love. Hafiz decided to push the limits even more and start criticizing religiosity. And now modern Iranians read that and they think that means that he wasn't a Muslim. Just because he was but internally what he was, criticizing. But what he was doing was calling out the hypocrisy without, right, without right. saying Islam. And this is the same thing that I think people like Muhammad Iqbal have done as well. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. You, if you interpret it as that, it sounds like, yeah, he was one of us. He didn't really care for Islam. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they'll, that's they'll so point, interesting. They'll point out things like, you know, if you look at Hafiz, At not Hafiz, I'm sorry, Atta Rumi Saadi, it's obvious. You can't deny that there are Muslims and they talk about being Muslim. Hafiz talks about Islam a lot in the sense that, you know, it was the milieu of his time, but he doesn't really do any of like the panegyric or we'd say in English, it's a weird word, the mat, you know, the praising. He never, like, there's, he doesn't have an ode about the prophet. He doesn't really have poems praising religious figures that, you know, a, a standard Muslim poet. Well, he has like one robai that, that talks about Imam Ali, and I think that might have been an early one. But definitely by the time he was a versed poet, he was more in the vibe of, of questioning life, questioning the point of life, you know, uh, lamenting sadness, questioning religiosity. But just because he didn't feel the need to write about being Muslim or how much he loved being Muslim because it was really tried and done at that point doesn't mean that he wasn't, you know? So I think this is a mistake yeah. in reading people haven't. And there's a, just a, a finish up a, there's a couple of things that he like obviously talks about being Muslim. So people who haven't really read Hafiz that much come away with the the idea that he isn't. But I mean, he has lines like kardam, which means whatever I did, it was from the the luck or the help of the Quran. So that's a really interesting. Yeah, that's so interesting because you know what what a lot of people don't think about is is also the um, the the people behind these poets who was who was funding them who was right. Who you know? Who were the people they were writing for? Because you couldn't be a poet and not earn something. Exactly. So typically yeah. You, you had a monarch. You're someone with money. With yeah, we should we should talk about you. this. this. Is a great yeah. So because you know because with so yeah so Hafiz Hafiz had one and and you know you can you can tell who's who the patriarchs were right based, yeah. based on their work. For sure. Um, yeah. I think and and with Hafiz you can you can almost tell. So Hafiz came around the same time. I think the Mongol invasion was happening. Exactly. No, no, this is wait, this is this is this is Timur's time, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Timur the Great had conquered it, but I think this is the decline now of if you like the the golden age of Islam in Iran, and you can see the fervent um, resistance to Islam and 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 more. I don't want to say looser interpretation and practice of Islam, but you you saw that you saw that in Hafiz, you could not get that in Atar and Saadi and Rumi. For sure, yeah, it was and a you, different vibe. And one other final point to add to that is, you know, you mentioned the religiosity between the three. This is this is also interesting. If you look at Atar and Rumi and 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 poets like that, they always began their poetry by praising the Prophet, yeah, Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And and actually, so you begin with Allah subhanahu wa taala, and then you move on the prophet, to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. 
and then you go into exactly and then you go into the the sahaba if you are the sunni persuasion or you skip them or you go to ali and but this was the thing to do you had to do that you couldn't begin yeah, a book exactly but yeah. without doing that because because the courts the the the, the, yeah, the yeah. sheikhs the imams they, they would see that and say wait you have a poet who doesn't begin reciting the name of god so they had to do it but i think with hafiz he was like no screw this, this yeah. that time is over i can i can yeah i can it's, just go straight into it what you describe is exactly the golestan which it's probably the most famous book it's the most famous book by Saadi and definitely up there you know competing with the masnavi or maybe even historically more famous than the masnavi i'm not exactly sure how to quantify that with the surviving manuscripts or whatever but it's definitely one of the most famous books in the muslim world period that was written one of the most prevalent the most studied and it begins with you know in the name of god then it and then it goes to after talking about God to the prophet and then the prophet's family and then after that it goes to talk about his patron so you mentioned that and um, I mean it has in the modern day what we would consider kind of almost like a cartoonish description of his patron he says the good things they say about Saadi etc are all none of these things could be attributed to his great learning or rhetorical skill rather the Lord of the world axis of the wheel of time visitor of Solomon and successor of the faithful magnificent of king of kings most mighty atabeg salur sultan vicious one of the world of religion abu Bakr, son of sad son of zangi shadow of the god upon this earth oh lord be content with him and grant him contentment i mean it just goes on and on just in praise of the person who's funding his work his patron i mean nowadays you have a university professor but they had sultans Saadi's name is not Saadi. His name is Musallahuddin uh, Abdullah Shirazi. Saad is the name of his patron. So he actually named himself after his patron. That's crazy. Yeah, and so that really shows, I mean, how much how much they funded these people. Without the funding, these people wouldn't have existed. How could you, you know, these some of these guys have so many poems. That I did the math. I think Amir Khosro has like 5,000 ghazals. Saadi has a couple thousand. Rumi has a couple thousand. He has his Masnavi. Some of them must have been writing at least 20 lines a day from age 20 to 80. That's if they lived 60 years and wrote a poem, wrote 20 lines every single day. So this was their full-time job. Every single day they were writing poems. That's incredible. That's, yeah. yeah. So the thing with the praising people, you know, I had issue with that when I was when I was reading poetry because I thought you're selling yourself out, you know, you're... What, where's the where's the truth and if you're if you're doing this is to please a, a ruler because there's criticism mm-hmm. typically of rulers saying they're they're not always religious they're doing yeah. the power hungry people if you're praising you're giving up your own mm-hmm. you know like there's an question of integrity but then there is something in Islam yeah. about um, praising your rulers because it's a good thing to do it's not anyway this is what they had to do yeah, um, yeah. It, it's it, probably a different so yeah. if people who are familiar with the the Machiavelli's the prince some people think that it was is written as a tribute to the whoever he was giving it to in Florence. Some people think that it was written as a joke, as a parody. So Saadi has a bit of that as well. So if you skip over the praise of the Sultan, the very first chapter is the conduct of kings. And all it is is essentially giving parables and lessons and stories about how kings should act. So although he does wow. worship the his Sultan, his king... There's quite a bit of admonishment for kings to make bad decisions in the book. So there is indirect criticism. That, that was kind of the, the the artsy way to do it is to not directly name anyone, but make it known who it's about. And Hafez has a lot of these. We, we can talk about him later. But Saadi definitely does uh, criticize uh, kings, which is even to this day in, in the quietest Sunni tradition to indirectly say things. Like if you watch the news in, um, like, I think his name is Atayyab, the, the, the grand... Mufti of Al-Azhar recently gave a statement in Egypt, I think about a month ago, that was considered to be kind of in a public 
public statement against yeah. the leadership. I mean, I don't want to get too much into that, but I mean, even till this day, so to speak, just just for the, no, it's important, the sake of right? that point, because I think, it exists I think to this I think day. It's that a really tradition. important topic. Yeah, yeah, it's good because because you have a job, you have a job too, and mm-hmm. poetry lasts. Look at, I mean, how many people's work do we read today from a thousand years ago? Um, just I had another point just before I forget this. Sure. You mentioned the dates of these guys. Isn't it interesting and beautiful at the same time that that these three, four, five poets came within three hundred years of each other? Yeah. All of them condensed and then and then nothing, you know, between wow, they about six hundred years gap. And there's a and there's a there's a concept in, in Islam about this that great student great teachers great great students yeah. and then greatness comes together. So when you start really, getting yeah. these long periods of um, that's true of, of, of a vacuum, you see the you see the deserving of us because we don't deserve that greatness in poets, that's very and, true, yeah. um, scholars, and saints. Because how what are the chances that you have these poets one right, right after the other even meeting it's each amazing. other? Amazing, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Like you and know, greatness reflects meeting greatness. Tabriz, yeah. um, you know, and so is that's I find that it's incredible yeah on. so i mean it's almost like if you look at the sunni tradition of islam the four great imams of sunni islam and then jafar sadiq islam as well the, the imam or the the scholar of shia islam so to speak the person who founded the madhab that we consider modern shia islam so the five main scholars of islam they're responsible for the five main madhabs or, or schools of thought in the religion you know shafi hanbali hanafi maliki and jafari uh those guys were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. And then since then, we haven't really had anyone who can hold their weight against against people of that stature. So it really goes to, yeah. to what you were saying just now. And So after those guys came like in quick succession of another, I mean, if you go on Ganjur.com, you can find probably the majority of, of well-known Persian poets in the Iranian tradition. Sadly, the South Asian tradition isn't very well represented, so you won't find Qalib on this website. But I mean, after those guys came, we had like a gap of hundreds of years and until we had people like Iqbal and Ghalib and stuff we weren't seeing you know people really coming out with the stuff that we had seen before there's there's dozens of poems and, and every century there's a poet but none of them really came to the stature of these guys a lot of them just felt like cheap copies of the old ones so it's it's kind of yeah. sad we haven't really seen a movement like that where people were, were were pushing out I mean these guys were putting out thousands of poems if you can imagine yeah, I've been I've been writing recently, and if I if I do four lines a day, I think I'm done. It's just exhausting. Yeah. They're geniuses, a, these guys. They're genius. These guys are geniuses, and there's a there's an interesting. But this this art of writing, right, is is now gone, and we'll come to Iqbal later on. But there's mm. an interesting concept because this training of poets happened. It was a it was a methodical way of doing it. You had a teacher, mm-hmm. the same way you have a madrasa, and you yep, had to go yeah. through the different principles of fiqh or whatever. Poets actually had teachers, so if you wanted to write a ghazal, you don't just sit down one day and say, okay, I know yeah. I know how the syllables will look, I know the metering system, I'm going to make it rhyme, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. You used to have to go to a school and you had a poet who would, who would guide you, who would criticize exactly, you, train yeah. you. And, and Iqbal, Iqbal had a teacher too. And I think at the early age of 13, maybe 16, he graduated from this teacher who said, you no longer need me, and Iqbal was still a young boy. These these people are gifted, you know. These are they not are, just people yeah. who are. They're not average are, people. They're not they're not they're not like 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 us. Well, at least like me, you know. We we try <laughs> no, to imitate. Sorry. We try to imitate the great. No, me the too. Yeah, we all people. do. Yeah. Um, but that's but that's but that's interesting. Okay, we missed out. Um, uh, Omar Hayam. Now, oh, right, before right. we go into him, before we go into him, I've read criticism that he, in fact, 
didn't write much poetry at all. I was just about and, to talk about that. It's great. And yeah. and everything that we have is 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 either it's just fabrications attributed to the scientist Omar Ayam. I don't know. Like Allah, Allah, Allah this Allah is knows. no one knows. I, so I I know a bit. I can speak on this subject a bit. I actually went to his grave in, in Iran and I went to the bookstore and there was a guy sitting there and I said, you know, I want the biggest collection you have. And he actually had a 2000 poem, Diwan, that was printed in Delhi about a couple hundred years ago. It was too expensive for me to buy at that time. I was maybe it was like four or five years ago. But I said, how many of these are authentic? And he was essentially saying uh, what, what you could find in, in books about Khayyam is that, like you said, we don't know how much he wrote. So there, he definitely did write poetry. Any polymath of his time would have written. A lot of these guys, you know, poetry was a, was a side thing for them, so to speak. Some of these dudes, their main, uh, their main concern was fiqh or science, math, what, you know, whatever. Not all of these guys were full-time poets. I mean, Rumi had a madrasa. He was giving khutbahs. He was giving fatwas and stuff. So it wasn't like, again, poetry, even despite how much they've written, they were doing other things as well. So anyway, Khayyam definitely did, you know, just someone of his stature at the time, just by default would have written poetry. But how much of what survives is from him, you know, Allahu Alam, as you said, we have diwans that are like 500 poems long, a thousand poems long. There came this tradition of writing poems in the Khayyam style and attributing it to him. And then it would just become part of the corpus. It's, this is kind of related to how manuscripts were written. You know, before we had printed books, before the printing press arrived in Germany, people copied down books by hand. And what would happen is, you know, either a poet would compile his divan, his collection, or his students or his patron when he died would compile it. And then people would copy this down. But it wasn't like copying the Quran down. There wasn't this idea that it has to be perfect. Sometimes people yeah. would see a line that they thought, no, this can't be written by this person. This is wrong. Sometimes when I read you know, a line to my dad, they'll say, no, Hafiz didn't write that. That's too basic. So then they would remove that line. Or they would write a line themselves that they thought fit the, the, the poem, and they would add that. Or they would see the ordering of the baits and say, uh, no, I think this one goes first. And then they would find another poem scattered somewhere that was similar and they said no no i think hafiz wrote this but it's out of the divan you know i'll add this to my divan so now sometimes you'll yeah. see what's considered the most correct hafiz divan for example the qazvini ghani one it's like 459 no 495 ghazals but you can find divans with up to 900 ghazals even so the idea of authenticity is it's very vague so we see many versions of ghazals many divans with different amounts of uh, poems there's some people who believe Chaim didn't write anything at all so you know allahu alam as you said and I, I did a story recently on this on this as well on, with um, Edward, Edward Fitzgerald, <clears throat> who turned um, Omar Hayam. He wrote the Rubaiyat uh, of Omar Hayam, which most of it is fabricated and it's, yeah, it's fabricated. Yeah. Um, and and this this Western fetishization with Omar Hayam and this anyway, that's a whole different story. But so <laughs> right. he was he was the last one I wanted to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. I th so I think that's that's. That's the list, right? I think that's the great There's like classical. The five, yeah. Oh, another in, another interesting observation. Okay, so when I went to Mashhad and I mm -hmm. went to uh, uh, Tus, so I actually haven't been to Nishapur, so I haven't mm -hmm. seen the the grave other. This is the geographical beauty about this. Think about think about all this greatness concentrated right. in that northeast region of Harasan. Right. Just just count. So you have actually we didn't talk about Ferdosi very much. Yeah. So you have Ferdosi, right? Al Ghazali. Ghazali, right? You have um, Atar, you have Khayyam who's from Nishapur, Hayam. So these these four are already within like uh, three hours driving distance of and each other. you have other. Imam Rida there too. Uh, it, you have Imam Rida. It's such a yeah. t small area, has like 
six, and then for, so it's like six heavyweights in our tra- Islamic tradition, buried right and next to each other. Exactly, and they're on the they're on the border of modern day Iran, but they're on the mo- well, they're not in, in the olden days. It wasn't a border, but you're yeah. touching Uzbekistan and you're touching India to right. the east, yeah. and you notice the and so this is what something a lot of people might not know is so when the Mongol invasion came around the time of al Azali, you either had two, 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 well, two options and of course you had Rumi who wasn't too far in Balkh, Afghanistan, right? Yeah. So you have Molana Rumi not too far either. Just, just you can't, you can't make this up. So when the Mongols came, you either went east or you went west. Yeah, exactly. So, so Molana Rumi went west, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, a lot of the scholars from Uzbekistan and and Khorasan region went east as well. Yeah. Which is why a lot of the region is now Hanufi because these Persian and China as well. Even they went all the way to China. China. So you had these Hankas, these Sufi um, places of learning being opened up in India. And this is and this is another connection between Persian and Hindi and Sanskrit yeah, yeah, and, exactly. and also the practice of Islam. But once that line was drawn between Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan, mm-hmm. it's like we've cut everything off. But but this right. region was the hotbed for no, it totally for was. You're right. And saints and but when those and, central, but you don't. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that's it. You don't get that anywhere else in, you really don't, in the yeah. world. You you just you can't go to any city and say list me four great giants like these that are you buried right next to so, yeah. So what's amazing is that when these guys flood eastward to China and South Asia, they really introduce a distinctly Persian Islam there. So in China, they say namaz, uh, mullah. They use Persian words. And they even have Persian hymns as well uh, that, that are Islamic hymns. And in, in South Asia, definitely, it's unmistakable. There's a, there's a distinct Persian flavor to the Islam there. And it's a, it's a shame to see money flooding in there from a, a certain region or a certain country in particular that's Arabizing. I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. I think you're going to have to be very, very clear about this. It's uh, Arabizing the Islam there and, and derooting the the, educate, the Persian education that's replacing the Shalwar Kamis with Thobes and uh, the, the Persian, you know, no, not even Persian, Kashmiri turbans. That, I mean, I love those things, as you, as you know, replacing them with the uh, the Arabian Qutra and Aqal and uh replacing our traditional Qawwali with, you know, no music allowed. So it's really a shame, again, uh, to see, you know, not colonization, but a, a different type that's just as insidious, that's, you know, trying to, you know, we already got a, a hit from one side, and now we're getting hit from another side, so to speak, with, with this uh, this Arabization of, of Islam in South Asia. The, the and But, you know, regardless of um, this attempt to, to depersonalize de- that region, you just can't remove it. And this is this is the beauty of the Persian legacy in that region is the the, the mode of tolerance and, and and the way poetry is written and the way the Ghazal is so popular in that region. You you can't you can't remove that influence and even between languages and, and clothing and food and, and music yeah, yeah. and language, you just how many how many generations of people are you really going to infuse with that Wahhabi Salafi way you just exactly, you just yeah. you know um, but it fits the characteristics and composition and the composure of those people as well. So I think that's why Islam spread so quickly in our region because what they did, what, what these Persian Sufis did was they, they they looked at what they were already following. So if they were idolaters, yeah, yeah. you know, Hindus, You know what's, in, what's incredible they, is, go ahead. Yeah, so they, they took elements of Zoroastrianism and that's how Zoroastrianism became Muslim quickly was they compared similarities between the two different faiths mm-hmm. and they said, well, we have that too, but we also have this new thing. And mm-hmm. this is and this is why the Indian subcontinent was so such a success for Persian Islam because yeah they knew how to do it they knew how to mix you know the new with the old but this is the right. problem with the Arab Arabization of the world they don't have that 
tolerance and respect for those local cultures. This they is why you, yeah, right. this the longevity will not be there once a certain state whose name we should never <laughs> never mention disappears, <laughs> right? Because you don't do that. This isn't how Islam spread. But anyway. Yeah. No. You, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Sometimes when I look at South Asia, I see a continent or a subcontinent that's more Persian than Iran in certain elements. So, for example, what we would think of today as South Asian clothing. It actually either emerged from or was a mix of Persian clothing. So the shalwar kameez, the turban, the way women dress, all of that stuff, it's totally present in Iran. If you look at historical depictions of Saadi, Hafiz, and all that, they dress what modern South Asians dress like, wearing a, a shalwar kameez, you know, the, the baggy pants and the, and the turban and the cloak over, just like you would see, you know, a mullah or, or an old dude in, in Karachi or Delhi dressing, you know, in a, histor- a historical place or at a mosque or something. And then... That's a... Really interesting observation. Yeah. I never thought about yeah, that. No, there's, yeah, no, the shower kameez, I mean, it's a Persian clothing. If you look at traditional South Asian clothing, it looks completely different. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is not, not even like a Hindu nationalist or something. They would wear a shower kameez and just consider it part of Indian culture. But it's definitely emerged as a, as a mixture. So if you look at one of the biggest symbolisms is the butta jaqa. It's the little paisley. It kind of looks like half of a yin-yang, that little symbol. Yeah. It's on like yeah, the Kashmir yeah. turbans. That's, that's a Persian symbol as well, but it's like one of the most prominent in South Asia. And even if you look at the food, biryani is a Persian food originally. If you look at uh, Zeresh Polobo Morg in Iran or something, it's just like biryani with less spice, you know, because we become babies. We don't yeah. like spices anymore. So, so much <laughs> of our tradition, it's it's intertwined. Even the, the writing, like Nastali is one of the most beautiful Persian fonts and it's slowly falling out of use. But almost everything written in Urdu is in Nastali. Even even like po- posters in, in the streets or something. You know, you know this is this is, this is is so interesting. Okay, so when I, so in my studies in Farsi, so I'm, I'm fluent in Urdu, right? I can read and write it. In my study of Farsi, um, this is what I discovered, that there's the, the Urdu language still is using Persian words that the Persians don't use anymore. Exactly, yeah. And, and from my yeah. Persian teachers, they would look at me and they would say to me, why are you using this word? And I said, well, this is, this is, this is what we speak in, uh, we use in Urdu. And and I was told, well, this is what my grandmother would have used. We don't, we don't, we no longer use that word. <laughs> exactly, you're because, right, yeah. So that's, that's interesting because, so you either have this like time, you have this like, this delay in, in time, time capsule, whether, yeah. Right, because but then that's a very hopeful way of looking at it because there's other yeah, issues with with the how Man, and but the other corruption language is different issue because a lot the words have been misallocated and misused so sadly, the, yeah. the meaning sometimes are completely wrong but the words are still there in in that region. I always try to check my direct messages every day and get back to people, and I always get translation requests and people request poets. That from people from Pakistan and India and things like that that Iranians don't even know about today like people like Jami and Amir Khosro like I get Jami requests all the time Jami is loved in South Asia and Gowali and stuff people are always yeah. sending me Jami stuff and I never get to it but Iranians and Iranian wouldn't even know who Maulana Jami is if you just stopped an Iranian off the street and said who's Jami maybe they would just guess based on his name that he was a poet because it's like a four letter name that's short they could tell it's like a poetic name but they wouldn't be able to tell you like where he's from or like quote a line of his poetry the way a South Asian person would be able to so I've got a question for you okay mm-hmm. so from my from my time in Iran my observation was Hafiz is the most loved poet for sure um, his, his book is in every cafe um, and that's not an exaggeration. I always say that because when I mention that, people think I'm exaggerating. It's, it's the equivalent would be having Shakespeare in every single Starbucks in the U.S., right? Yeah, every home has Hafiz. Everyone. Every home has it. And then, you know, you could find, if you needed a, if you needed a copy of Hafiz, all you had to do is stop yourself 
anywhere in Iran, look around you, and within 30 seconds, you could get a copy of Hafiz. For sure, people yeah. Carry, people carry it on themselves, you know, in either a small um, printed version in the bag, or they have the app for yeah, it. Yeah, you're right, that's not an exaggeration. But, but, but they have it. And, but, but, this, but this is, is, um, is unparalleled. You cannot get this anywhere else in the no, world. No, I can't think of you an know, example, the, yeah. The equivalent, the equivalent would be, would be, the, would be the, the glorious Quran. Um, that's the only book I can think about, right? Yeah. But, but with Hafiz, he has that privilege. Now, okay, the question was, why, why, so we know why Hafiz has become more popular, but in, other than Saadi, but even Molana Rumi doesn't have that status. Yeah. So in terms of people like um, uh, Molana Jami or Amir Husro, has has poetry really started to decline because Hafiz has now become the monopolized yeah. poet? And, and he's become the cool poet because if you know him, you're cool and you can recite him. Mm-hmm. But is that just a superficial love for poetry? or is I think, I think you're right, yeah. So the you're right. So some poets have been essentially forgotten. Again, if you go on Ganjur and pull, pull up any random not well-known poet, you're, like I think maybe 1% of Iranians would know who these people are. Even people, again, like Saadi, who used to be well-known, everyone knows who he is. He's probably just as, his name is just as known as Hafez. But people are less and less likely to just sit and read his poetry for fun, uh, especially if you look into people who are more overtly religious. Other than Rumi, again, he made the cut somehow, but other people, no. So Hafez has become popular, but I think in a superficial sense, people tend to tell me they don't understand him. He has a very specific style of writing. It's very dense and famous for being difficult to read. People like his poems that are kind of lovey-dovey or question Islam, and they're also the ones that just happen to be easier to understand. People are unlikely to like read, you know, Ghazal 361, you know, they're more likely to, to read a couple in the, in the beginning that are well known, or maybe flip to one when they do fall off as that practice of picking a random Ghazal, maybe they do that or something. You need, wait, wait, you need to tell people what, what fall okay, so Hafiz is. Hafiz has kind of become the oracle <laughs> of the Iranian people. So it, almost in the sense that people who istikhara with the Quran, if, if they're facing a fork in the road or they just want, you know, their fortune told, they flip to a random page of Hafiz. Or you'll even find people who have a, a caged bird that, that picks a little poem out of a... Uh, you've probably seen this in Iran by now. And essentially, that's supposed to give you some sort of a guidance for the future or, or give you some sort of comfort. So he really is the that's, muse of the Iranian people. I find that I find that so cringeworthy. Every time I see that in, in Shiraz, just, <laughs> the, the little bird guy who's... Uh, the selling. little bird is like, you know, it's, it's like held prisoner to this, yeah, exactly. this old man. And, and yeah, he has exactly. to just... It's so um, ironic because Hafiz's poetry is full of uh, analogies with a, of like a caged bird, you know, flying away. So it's just the complete irony of a bird being caged for his poetry. So I've got a, I've got, I'm going to give you a few seconds to sure. prepare a poem. I want you to read a poem of Hafiz, um, maybe one or two, whilst you pick one. Yeah. Um, my observation with Hafiz is, um, mm-hmm. it's you know, when I I went to Iran last year, I did a tour with. Um, with a lot of people, well, mostly Europeans, and I warned everybody and said, before we go to the tomb of Hafiz, you have to know something because it's probably going to be one of the worst experiences you'll have, um, just just because of how popular he is and what happens yeah. around his tomb, and 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 the noise and the madness and and the and the obsession with with selfies and oh and yeah, the, it's um, bad. they've ruined you know it. it's the this cheap on it and I and I and I think you know I. You just know he would not have approved mm-hmm. of this in any way, and the silence is gone now. They have, if you if you remember, if you've been recently, mm-hmm. you remember they have the loudspeakers where they're they're actually reciting his poetry, and then there's a sound of birds that are wait really played because no way yeah oh my god so you know I have, wasn't like that when I went that's incredible so, so you can hear like a bulbul being a, it's a digital sound because <laughs> digital bulbul. <laughs> 
it's 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 just you know it's just it's so sad and and i had this beautiful experience when i went recently because um there was a there was a naqshbandi um a group of uh, of iranian muslim um women and so they they turned up right they turned up with the copies of the quran and and uh, um and uh, hafiz and, and and you know the one hafiz and so they surrounded the tomb the just this the immediate space around it the glass you know the the, the tombstone and they were reciting the Quran and and his poetry, and because they were wearing you know chadors and and you know all black, mm-hmm. and they were you know they were tearing up and because you know there's a there's an element of Hafiz is Muslim he's one yeah. of us he wasn't he wasn't this he's ours. <laughs> um, who was and and this made people so uncomfortable really and I'm talking about the I'm talking about the Iranians not even there's not many tourists mm-hmm. that come but you do get random Germans and and whatever, but mostly people just felt a little bit uncomfortable because. You have this six black chador Iranian woman reciting the Quran, and and this is not something that's commonly seen in that yeah. in that area because people typically are fully glammed up in heels and and lipstick. Yeah, and those are the types of it. people that are interested in that do go right. And and I just stood there and I thought, oh, this is I don't know. There's something beautiful about this site, but at the same time, it shows you the tension between the mm-hmm. old and the new and the Islam and the new Hafiz. What people make of him, I think it is what they want him to be. He's just, he's just become that poet now in Iran that yeah. you can't really understand unless you've you've spent time in Iran because he's a huge deal. Okay, yeah, your time to read me something. <laughs> okay, for sure. I'll, uh, I think what we should do is I, I can read a couple poems and then we can talk a, a bit about maybe just some of the thoughts and then I'll I'll go back and we'll, we should talk about a bit about his grave as well. There's there's an interesting story there, but I'll go ahead and start reading a poem. So this is Ghazal number ten. It's of the, the document I sent you. It's page 22. It's from the mosque to the wine house. So for people who want to find in the Persian, the first line is, Dush az masjid suya meykhane amad pire ma. Chis yaran. Chis yaran tariqat bad az in tadbira ma. So those are the first two Persian lines. But I'll read in uh, the translation I have. From the mosque to the wine house, went to the sheikh of our congregation. O oh, partners, what is our tariqa other than this destination? How can we disciples turn to the qibla when... Our peer has his face towards the path of the wine den. In the wine house of our tariqa, we live together in fraternity, for this is how our fate is in the covenant of eternity. How happy the heart is to be tied to his hair, if only wisdom knew. In search of our locks, the wise would go crazy too. A verse was gracefully exposed to us by the beauty of your face. Since that time, our tafsir hasn't been other than goodness and grace. At nights, does your stony heart at all think about the fiery lament or the nightly burning pain my chest lets out? The arrow of our cries passes the skies, Hafiz, be silent. Have mercy for yourself and avoid my trident. So this, this poem is, is packed with a lot of metaphors. And I think it's a good example of how people mistakenly read Hafiz. In my opinion, of course, you know, Allahu Alam, what the meaning is. But people kind of read these, these first two lines. Yeah, you know, he left the, the mosque and went to the wine house. You know, this is what we're up to. You know, they're thinking like that, that he's just completely shunning the Islamic tradition. But really, I think this is a metaphor where Hafiz is, is comparing like a Hanukkah or a place where Sufis gather to a wine house because that's where you go, you know, you see Sufi celebrations or, or worship. It's just so ecstatic and there's a lot of dancing and singing and just happiness and, and drums and things like that. So just to kind of draw a distinction between what he views as a very dry, almost like we see Salafism today, dry, emotionless, uh, only obsessed with the exterior, the Zahir or the movements of Islam, just understanding Islam, what you can see of it, you know, 
are, are he uses this analogy a lot too. People who just uh, see the uh, the exterior. So just the movements of the prayer, what time to pray, you know, what not to do, what color clothing to wear, those things. He's not interested in those things. Those those boring, you know, legalism legalisms or Islam just with no spirituality attached. So for him, he's saying, you know, our peer left the mosque, so he did pray. I think that it's not obvious, but if you read it, you know, why would he be at the mosque in the first place? So he left the mosque. So he's saying we did. He did his prayers, and then he came to the Hanukkah where we have our Sufi celebration. So there's two elements, there's two sides to Islam. You know, there's a mosque side where the, the Sharia happens and there's the Hanukkah side where the, the Sufi stuff happens. And then he comes down and he, and another line, he says, in the wine house of the Tariqah, we live together in fraternity for this is how our fate is in the covenant of eternity. So in the first line, he's, he's mentioning something that exists to this day, not really anymore, but it's still present in some places. This idea of a Tariqah, a uh, place or like a place where Sufis gathering being almost like a monastery where some people live together and you sometimes see that where people will actually live in Sufi centers it used to be the common practice back in the day if you wanted to join a tariqa you had to live with them kind of be like a monk in a way but I mean nowadays because of modernity this doesn't happen and then the second line he says for this is how our fate is in the covenant of eternity this is one of the biggest most prevalent uh, way of most prevalent thoughts in Hafiz's poetry the idea that the world is determinant that we have fate and that that's just it. He's very fatalist and he makes references all the time in the poetry. And whenever he uh, talks about his sins or, you know, drinking or, or whatever, you know, Javoni, as we'd say in Persian, you know, being a young person, uh, dilly-dallying with lovers and things like that, he always uh, put, places the blame on essentially his fate, that this was my fate to be like a lowly, not well-liked, you know, on the fringes of society person. It's one of the, the most prevalent thoughts. I, then, I like that observation yeah. a lot. Right after he yeah, says, how like happy the heart is to be tied to his hair, if only reason knew. In search of our locks, the wise would go crazy too. So this is, again, another deeply Sufi metaphor. So Sufis, I don't know if you noticed, grow really long hair. So the idea is, you know, I'm tied to the long hair of my peer. If you Some, some of these Qalandar Sufis have hair down to their, their waist, you know. So he says, if only people knew how nice it would be to tie to his hair. Yani, that means how nice it would be to be a Sufi or to be on this path. In search of our locks, the wise, and wise here is al ghil, which Hafiz is kind of using ironically. He means like the very strict religious people. If only they knew the pleasures of Sufism, they would want to be crazy like us do. And this is a common metaphor is to refer to yourself as crazy or to refer uh, to, Su to Sufis as crazy. And yeah, so then that was one poem. I think I'm going to go to poem 80 now, which um, is on page 38. Yeah, sure. This is your translation, right? Yeah, these are all my translations that I, that I so put this on is my the, account. This is the this is the this is your translation of Hafiz that you're working on. Yeah, that inshallah will inshallah. will have one day to. to I really own. hope so. This is amazing. I've read many translations and and I've been reading this book. You sent me a copy months ago and I've been reading it secretly and I <laughs> and I'm just I'm just in awe because I said to you the translation issue is a huge one. But I Alhamdulillah, I think you've thank you. You're doing you're really you've, you've done a really good job. Okay, I'll let you continue. Yeah, thank you. So this is another really famous one. Uh, it tends to be loved by the, the, the people who you mentioned, you know, visiting Hafiz in high heels and stuff, the people who, who want to render him as someone who's not religious at all, uh, who want to ignore that dimension of him. So he says, it begins in Persian, And in English it is, Don't denounce the libertine, O ascetic of pure disposition, for the sins of others won't have your attribution. If I'm good or bad, you go be yourself. Each person will reap the seed that he sows for himself. 
Whether sober or drunk, for a lover everyone will search. Every place is a home of love, whether a mosque or a church. And let me see. I'll continue reading it. My head of submission and the wine house's dirt mix. If a pretender doesn't understand, say, thy head in the mud bricks. Don't make me lose hope in the precedent of everlasting grace. What do you know of who is good or ugly behind the veiled face? It wasn't just me who fell from the curtain of piety. My father, too, lost grasp of the eternal heaven in its entirety. Hafez, on the day of your death, if you drink a wine chalice, they'll take you from the street of drunkards straight to a heavenly palace. So this, is again, is packed wow. full of Sufi metaphors. But if, if you were to just read it from the external element, you would think that it's like a, I don't know, like an edgy teenager saying he doesn't want to be Muslim anymore. So the lines that you read in, in the beginning, if I'm good or bad, you go by yourself. Each person will reap the seed that he sows for himself. Yeah. That, you know, this this idea of, um, you know, of, um, just you are answer, answerable only to yourself. And this mm-hmm. And this is this is this is the thing about this work. You really need to understand, and and the, and you need a teacher in some cases to explain mm-hmm. this to you because I see what you mean. This is this is so easily interpreted in the way you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just reading the rest of sure, it as I'm sure. as I'm talking. No, so I'll and, break um, down some of the the things that I yeah, think can be lost it. in translation. So some words are very prevalent in the Islamic tradition, but they're almost lost in English. So for example. Muslims have revived words in English that an average English speaker wouldn't know, like ablution and prostration. Those are two words that every Muslim knows, like wudu and sujood. But an English speaker, you know, they wouldn't know what wudu is. They wouldn't know the word ablution. These words are just lost in the English language. So one of these words is libertine, which corresponds to the word zahid. So zahid comes from Arabic zuhud, which means kind of being like a monk, you know, not having material goods, just praying, praying, praying. And in and English, it renders it ascetic, but again, it's not a really well-known word. Hafiz always contrasts this to the rind or the libertine, which is the person who kind of dabbles in things that would be considered uh, not permissible or haram. It's very confusing, the etymology of this word. I've tried to look into origins. I've seen people arguing where it came from. I'm not sure. One theory is that, so Hafiz often says rind kharabati, which is, they commonly go together. Kharab in Persian means broken down. In Arabic, it's kharabat is a plural of kharabe, which means a broken place. So the theory is that in medieval Persian cities, the edges of town were kind of broken down places where questionable seedy people would hang out. So you can imagine people dealing with all kinds of things that society wouldn't, uh, wouldn't accept, so to speak. And then Hafiz kind of sees this lowly Sufi thing where Sufis kind of, you know, put, a, put an emphasis on on being humble and not holding your head up and wearing, you know, tattered clothes and kind of this this very ecstatic, uh, you know, expression of religion seems more well-placed in the kharabe, in the edge of town where, you know, the seedy characters live. And it doesn't seem well-placed with the, the zahid, with the person who's wearing a clean, you know, white thobe and he's just praying all day and, and he's sitting there quietly. So Hafiz always contrasts himself with this figure. So maybe Hafiz sees, you know, Sufi's place is more appropriate with with people who are also you know low in society for other reasons but anyway he goes on uh to say whether sober or drunk for a lover everyone will search every place is a home of love whether a mosque or a church i think maybe he's referring to or maybe he's drawing a contrast between divine love and human love so maybe hafiz here is saying that i have both divine love and human love i'm, I'm not sure I, I think that's maybe what he's saying and then he says 
مدعی گر نکند فهم سخن گو سر و خشت He says my head of submission in the wine house's dirt mix If a pretender, a muddai literally means a claimant or someone who claims something but can't necessarily back it up. So maybe someone who's a pretend pious. If he doesn't understand, say, thy head in the mud bricks. So this is, again, maybe referring to uh, a Sufi metaphor. Even till this day, when people enter some Sufi centers, some tariqahs, they have to kiss the, the ground of the Sufi center to enter. So you enter, you bow down in the doorway. You kiss the ground and then you get up and walk in. And I mean, nowadays it's rugs, but you could assume maybe back then the floor of every building was dirt, you know? So maybe he's saying, you know, you have to lower yourself to enter this path. And if someone's saying, I don't understand, it says you have to rub your head in the, in the ground before you can, you can get up again and enter this place. And then he's saying, it wasn't just me who fell from the curtain of piety. My father too last, lost grasp of the eternal heaven in its entirety. This is thought to be a reference to Hazrat Adam, you know, Adam from the, from the biblical and Quranic tales, so to speak. So maybe he's saying, I wasn't the only one who made a mistake. You know, my ancestor Adam, the, the theological idea that we all descend from Hazrat Adam. So Hafiz packs, definitely packs in a lot. And it's easy to, to lose track of it all if you don't really read every line and, and look into it. Wow! Yeah, yeah, that's that's really that's really 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 well well done. That's and he's he's an incredible. St poet, still taking man. it so in. Yeah. So there's um there's another one that's referring to him being buried actually. So it's kind of appropriate we talked about his his burial place. It's Ghazal two hundred five, uh, and it's on page forty nine of the document. It begins Tazeme Khanu Me Namunashan Khahad Bud. And I'll read it in English. He says, As long as the wine house and wine have a name and a sign, O Magi Peer, my head will be the dirt on this path of thine. My Magi Peer's words have rung in my ears since eternity, were what we've been and will remain with certainty. When you pass by my gravestone, ask for a hand, for it will be the pilgrimage site for the libertines of every land. Go, O self-seeing ascetic, for your eyes cannot see. This curtain's hidden secrets, and hidden they'll be. Today my drunk, lover-killing Turk went forth. From whose eyes will blood flow henceforth? From the moment when yearning for you made me choose a grave for my head, until the morning of judgment day, I will worry and dread. If Hafez's luck will help him in this way, in the hands of others, his lover's hair will stay. <laughs> so again, like he's dragging himself down. But this again, this poem is just packed. Like in the beginning... He's worshiping his peer. And in Sufism, we call our sheikh or the leader of your Sufi order a peer. But he, he, this is one of the, the biggest you know, secrets or the biggest mysteries is who the peer of Mulqan is. So Mulq in a, in a singular means Zoroastrian. Mulqan means Zoroastrian. So he always refers to his peer or his spiritual leader as the leader of the Zoroastrians. And there's a big debate as to who this is. One theory that I think is improbable is that he was a literal Zoroastrian priest. I think that, that just historically doesn't make much sense. Another theory, which I think is more probable, is that he's contrasting kind of, again, dry, almost what we call today a Salafi Muslim leadership with a heterodoxical, rebellious Muslim leadership. And the way he really emphasizes that is by referring to him as a Zoroastrian, saying, you know, he's different. He's, he's doing something different. And he also makes yeah. a few references to, to fire as well. So he, he likes to make you know non-islamic references again kind of pushing the envelope so he says my mag my magi peers words have rung in my ear since eternity where what we've been and will remain with certainty 
So in the first line, he says, which I've translated as words, but it's kind of impossible to translate halqa. Halqa is what Sufis do when they want to do dhikr or remembrance. They get in a circle and hold hands usually, and they chant certain chants. Now, if you begin attending a Sufi center regularly, the chant will become so ingrained in you that you'll just see yourself subconsciously doing it. One of the famous ones is, Hey Allah, Hey Allah, which means God is living and also means God come or like come to us in Arabic. And, you know, if you go to a Sufi center like I have when I lived in the Middle East for, you know, every week for a year straight, sometimes you'll just be sitting there and you'll hear in your head, hey, Allah. So I think that's what he's referring to. And then he says, have rung in our ear since eternity. This goes back to his belief in determinism. Hafez believes that whatever path anyone takes in life was pre-chosen for him on what he calls Ruza Azal which is essentially like the day with no beginning or end or the day before time. So he believes that, you know, whether you're an ascetic or a Sufi or a rebel or whatever has already been determined by God. This is, again, one of the main themes in his poems. And here he refers to the, the concept of the istimdad in Sufism, the idea of asking a, a, a deceased saint for intercession. He says, when you pass by my gravestone, ask for a hand. And then he says, go self-seeing aesthetic for your eyes cannot see this curtain's hidden secrets and hidden they'll be. So he's saying, hey, don't be a mudday. Don't say that you can tell me everything about this universe for there's secrets hidden behind this curtain. And the curtain is another common metaphor. You know, what's on the other side of the curtain? It could be a lover. It could be the secrets of the world. No one knows. And then, you know, who knows when the curtain will drop? Maybe when we die. And, yeah. then, and then another thing is uh, he, he now he transitions to love. So he goes from making Sufi metaphors to kind of human love metaphors. He says, today my drunk lever-killing Turk went forth, from whose eyes will blood flow henceforth? So to who else will a lover go and cause pain? Hafiz often uses the word Turk in his, his uh, poems. One of the most famous ones is, I get on Turki Shirazi, if that, uh, that Shirazi Turk. He doesn't literally mean a Turk in the sense of we would think like an Anatolian or Azeri Turk. Turk was a metaphor for someone who was unjust and unkind. You know, before Turks became known as, as a large ethnicity, like any other ethnicity we know today, in Iran... Turks were kind of this like far off Central Asian group of people who were known as a warrior tribe. So a metaphor for someone who causes you pain or hurts you is to call them a Turk in Persian poetry. Again, in our modern world, we wouldn't we wouldn't do this. It wouldn't be like acceptable. But back then, these types of anal uh, analogies were acceptable. Um, no, I think we still have those analogies today. We still <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's kind of like I think we very much still have them today. We, we do. I mean, but I think like if I were to make an analogy like that, people wouldn't wouldn't be happy about that. But yeah, we definitely do as a people. We do have these analogies for sure. But like, it's not. Yeah, you can like write it in a into a poem without. So without he's not. Writing. He's not. It's, um the the poem you referred to just before this one. Were you was that the one where he's talking to. Uh, to uh to Timur is that the one where yeah ex exactly yeah exactly yeah. so you can I mean you can talk about that a bit I know that you wrote about that and I read your uh, uh, blog about Hafez and you mentioned that so you could talk about that no I mean that's that's just uh yeah that's it's just the audacity of Hafez and this is why I like Hafez so much I think he had that he had that cheekiness you know he he yeah, could yeah. he could stand because because Timur um, or the West knows him as as Timur Lane um, was considered the most barbaric. Mm -hmm. ruler at that time he was uh he came after the mongols so shiraz for those who don't know shiraz so most of most of persia was was devastated by the mongols except southern areas so so nishapur where was ali um uh, uh well that region um Athar and hayam came they it was completely flattened but shiraz was was spared that yeah treatment um because both times when the mongols came the vizier of shiraz offered a lot of gold and gems and complete submission 
um, to say, don't don't destroy us. We'll give you what you want. Continue with your um, devastation onwards. And they went all the way to Baghdad and, and ended the Abbasids. Exactly. And then when the, when when Timur came, the the Shirazis did the same thing. You know, yeah, yeah. Don't destroy us. We'll give you whatever you want. And and when when Timur heard of this poet called uh, Hafiz Shirazi, um, that's the poem that he read to to compare the importance of Samarkand, right? Which was mm-hmm. the capital of. Uh, the Timurid Empire, exactly. which was considered the greatest city in the world at that time, had its own um, um, center of learning. They had, they had. I mean, they had they had space observatories there. I mean, if you can imagine, Incredible, yeah. imagine a thousand years ago. So for I think, and this is a poem. You can read the full the verse if you want. But essentially, he said, "I would I would trade, uh, what is it? I would trade the uh, the mole on my lover's cheek for your capital for for Samarkand." <laughs> yeah. And, so he's saying, um, uh, and a Persian, it's. اگر آن ترک شیرازی به دست دارد دل ما را به خال هندویش دهم سمرقند و بخارا را which translates to if that Shirazi Turk takes my heart in her hand or his heart in his hand it's the, the gender is ambiguous in Persian poetry I should mention on a grammatical basis for his Hindu beauty mark I'll give him Bukhara and Samarkand so it, it's saying I'll trade <laughs> so Bukhara away these, and these, Samarkand. these two the two greatest cities I'll, I'll trade it away from my lover's mole essentially so and and you can see this Hindu incredible. beauty mark. At the time, they were aware of of South Asia, and they made a lot of references also to China. So one common reference in Persian poetry is Butechin, which means Chinese idol. This would be referring to like a Buddha statue, mm. I guess maybe like something very beautiful and made of gold. And they also re- the- make references to India. Hafiz even re- references being famous in India. He said, "Shikar shikar shodan tutiyan hand zain qand parsi ke be Bengal miravad," which means. Uh, the the tutis, the birds, the songbirds of India have have become sugary from this Persian uh, treat or this Persian delight that goes to the Bengals. Which is interesting because um, I was going to come to this later on, but um, around the seventeenth century, uh, there's a city in Bangladesh which became the the center of the the Persian poetry scene in wow. the entire Indian subcontinent. That's how far it went. The 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 reference to Hind. Obviously, you and you always you often see in um, Arabic literature and poetry literature mm-hmm. comes from the the beautification. At that time, Hind was considered a beautiful element or attribute. To say something came from Hind meant yeah. it was beautiful because the Yemeni traders would often go across the the ocean into into India and they would bring back silk and um, they would bring back weaponry and metalwork and swords. So if you had something from the Hind, it was considered to be Yep. You know, like you got something from Paris, you know, this exactly. is Parisian. So there's so, a, one of the, yeah. you guys, uh, the, the, the South Asians were making a lot of, I mean, first of all, the turbans. So Arabs, before they got their modern headdress, which is kind of this white scarf and the black band around it, that was kind of a Bedouin thing. Most Arabs who, who were consider themselves, you know, city people, like and not even just Arabs, but Muslims generally everywhere in the Muslim world, what Hafiz and Saadi, for example, would have on their heads was a, was a fabric from South Asia. So South Asia, I mean, before British colonization, was producing the best fabrics in the world. And, and that's why you'll see stories like Viking fabrics will be discovered and they'll have like la 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 on them or something. I don't know if you saw that. It was like a big story in the Muslim sphere a while ago. Because, you know, South Asia was just producing fabrics from all over the world. So Yeah, so the fabric would come from South Asia. It would go into Persia and Arabia. There yeah. they would embroider it in the same with the Ottoman Empire. And then it would be taken to Vienna, yeah. taken into Paris 
they would wear it and then they would redraw the the um, pseudo Kufic Arabic yeah, and in paintings exactly. of Madonna or whatever. Amazing. The the, the chain amazing. would be amazing. And the the funny thing is, now you have the same thing with Zara having sweatshops in Bangladesh <laughs> and India. Just a modern version. You know, so one time but, I met you know, this guy. Cyclical, yeah. right? This is cyclical. It's, it's, it's just it goes it's in a, it goes sad, in a circle. But, yeah, but we've we've lost the honor to it. You know, before we could proudly say now now we're making sweatshops. Sadly, uh, I re- I remember one time I, I met a guy who came to our Sufi center in Amman, Jordan, for the first time, and I, I guess he had been visiting on and off, but he got busy. So that was the first time I saw him, but he had been there before, and I met him, and he said, you know, what is your name? It's Muhammad. So what is your? He says, my name is Muhannad, and I never heard that name before. <laughs> But I was studying Arabic grammar, and I, I knew what Muhannad meant. Muhannad literally means Indianized, or, or something that's, that's Indian. And I was confused. I said, you know, what does your name mean? And he said, it's a type of sword. So apparently, the good swords that were heading towards the Arabian Peninsula were from India, because, you know, India had the resources to, to shape metal and, and give, you know, yeah, sort of curve. Yeah. So that was like, you know, it's a masculine name. It's Muhannad, and literally Indian sword. And I thought that was incredible, you know, that, I mean, I don't think anyone swords are in day-to-day life now but that, that kind of memory that collective memory of our, our past has remained in people's minds that's amazing I didn't know that it's, it just reminds me of the the, the Turkish Mahmud um, but that doesn't have a have a same meaning but I think I think Muhammad comes has a word hind in it right so yeah it's, it's so that's, when that's you add meme yeah. to Arabic words it t- changes the, the meaning so for example tabakha means to cook but matbakh means uh, kitchen so Han okay. is like it means India, but if you say you know Ahanad, that means like I Indianize, which it's a very weird construction. No one would say that, but Mohanad is used something that's been Indianized or something from India. So that's amazing. That's yeah, I thought it was amazing. You know, when I when he told me that, it was just like almost like harkening back to our past where you know we we had a, we had a more glorious. <laughs> glorious civilization so to speak i i feel like i completely ruined the conversation with that zara comment but no it's, it's fine that's true, it's true. <laughs> no, you're right um, it's, it's but, the, but the, the place of the place of the, the place of hind and the place of the subcontinent isn't what it used to be but um but the, yeah the persian influence spilled over um okay so let's move on to so we've i think we've covered thank you for that recitation by the way that was beautiful i i i've become so I've only read Hafiz by Dick Davis. This is the copy that I've read before. I've read yours, and I have to say I'm I'm close to printing yours out and, and reading that as my main as a main source. It's really really good stuff. Um, okay, so let's move on to what what's happened in Persian poetry since since after Hafiz. So sure. So sure. what's happened so then? I, I think in, in, I'll I'll start with with Hafiz's uh, Hafiz's death really quickly. There's there's an interesting note because you mentioned his grave. I wanted to to come to this. So when Hafiz died, they didn't want to, the authorities didn't want to let him be buried in a Muslim cemetery, the religious story. So I should back up. Hafiz always had a complicated relationship with authorities. He had one patron that he really liked, and there's some poems actually lamenting his loss. So the, the Ghazal 363, which I think I sent to you, my pain is for my lover, my cure as well, or things like that. Um, uh, you can take a look at that. I think it's about him. There's there's certain ones. Uh, there's also ones though. The, I've written a note, and my lover hasn't written back. I think you posted that. Uh, I think. I do. So, I I, do. I've written. Yeah. I've written uh, that horse riding king didn't write a salam or kalam. I think I sent you that before. You have. It, you have. Yeah. 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 That one. So that one might be. So anyway. So then a patron leaves, and then Hafiz gets oppressed. Uh, this a new patron comes, tries to impose a really harsh uh, religious law in Shiraz. The wine houses get closed. Hafiz has some has some poems that are actually criticizing of government. He like he, he says that like uh, the the crown the, the sultan that has 
uh, human pain etched into it, it wouldn't be worth it. Even it wouldn't be worth losing your head for it or something. So Hafez definitely had some had some anti uh, anti authority, anti establishment poetry. But anyway, so Hafez uh, that guy gets replaced, and then a third ruler comes who's friendly with Hafez, and, and he goes back to writing poetry and getting patronage. But then Hafez passes away. And they want to have him buried, but the problem is that the religious authorities of Shiraz are so fed up with him that they don't want him buried in the Muslim cemetery. So now this, that's up to that is true. I know it to be true. From this part, I don't know if it's true or not. This might just be, you know, Hafezian legend, of which there are many, where they say they decide to do follow Hafez from his divan to figure out what Hafez would say about being buried. So they do follow Hafez, <laughs> and it opens to a poem which talks about Golgashte, uh, uh, no, it says and things like that, which is essentially the flower of Golgash, or the, the flower garden of Golgash in the river of Mosalla. Which it's funny, you know, Hafiz describes them in such beauty, even though it's like a tiny river in a really small garden. But they were at the time on the outskirts of Shiraz. So that would have been an acceptable place to bury him because no one was there. It wasn't a Muslim graveyard. You know, he wouldn't be making the place impure or najis. So they buried him in the outskirts of town, actually. So if you go to Google Maps and look up Hafez's uh, grave in modern-day Shiraz, even till this day, his grave is pretty distant from what would be considered the center of town. It's very on the edge. Like, if you look at the map, if you just go up, like, a few blocks from his grave, you're in the mountain. Like, you're really you're near yeah. the Quran gate. He's really far from, at the time, would have been town. But they buried him in a place that he described, and his tomb was destroyed many times over, not only shortly after his uh, death, but throughout the centuries. You, you can read a good Iranica encyclopedia, I think it's called, article about Hafez, just his tomb, and how it's been destroyed and rebuilt about a dozen times. And most recently, it was destroyed during the Safavid period, the Qajar period. I think what we have now was built by the Pahlavis. I'm not sure. But anyway, so, yeah. yeah, so Hafez passes away, and... After that, really, I, I don't think anyone of, of equal stature has emerged other than, I mean, what we're going to talk about towards the end. As far as from Iran, no one could really come close to him. A lot of times it feels like poets are really just, you know, overtaken by his shadow. It's so intimidating to come after him. I mean, what could you produce? It feels like, you know, a dozen poets could write, you know, 12 divans, and then maybe each divan would have one poem in it that would be equally as nice as a bad poem in Hafez of Divan. So it almost seems like he closed the book on the tradition, so to speak. He did it so well that no one can, can do it better, almost. And I, it pains me to say that, but I feel like I can't come across a poet who who's really done an all-around better job than Hafiz. Of course, you know, someone like Muhammad Iqbal talks to issues that you know, Hafiz didn't have. You know, modernity, colonization, the decline of the Muslim world. So, of course, you know, they're important. But as far as a general person for skill and you know his rhetorical ability, I think Hafiz really has has maxed out, <laughs> maxed out all of the, the 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 skills, so to speak. Yeah, that's so. After it took about I think five hundred years, maybe just under for for the next great Persian poet to come out, which is Mirza Mirza Ghalib. Um, and I think we try to find some of his work in Persian to read, but it really isn't that accessible. So he's sad, known yeah. more for his Urdu poetry, but he wrote majority of his stuff in, yeah. in, in Farsi. Yeah. So, um, yeah. This is another... So he's Indian, right? So yeah, he's so... not... So so this is now... So this is just to... I think we just jumped a little bit of context. So so the Persian influence of Persian poetry, the Ghazal, um, through Sufi um, monks migrated or was taken into into the subcontinent Indian region right. and, and it became entrenched in the Islam that we know as as, um, sure. as Islam sure, that we yeah. now and the Sufism has become 
so it's a different version of Sufism as you would find in other regions of the world and Sufism almost has a bad taste in some people's mouth from that yeah, region because of its because of its mixture with Hinduism and certain elements of sainthood and yeah so yeah and so as we, yeah as we know Zoroastrians are the second largest presences in India sort of around so there's there's a lot of confusion about Sufism generally but but the Ghazal was taken into that region through the Sufis yeah. who, who migrated so now so now what you get is you get the formation of of um of Urdu language which yeah. which has deeply within it and they borrow exactly the Arabic and then the Persian right, right. Ghazal structure and the um and the and the metering system and then the first great power that comes around along is, is Mirza Ghalib and he just and he just destroys it I mean he just goes right, fully yeah. into it and this now this guy now is in in many ways do you know do you know much about Mirza Walib his life I, you know I sadly I don't I know that he he was uh, I guess semi modern is the right word did did he live in the 18th century or the 19th century yeah so he was born yeah exactly so he was born around 1800s I think 1797 mm-hmm. and and this is and this is this is a very humiliating time for that region because it's the, the British the Mughals, Raj yeah. and and this is and this is you know it's always telling that you've had a five hundred year gap and and we also we're only looking at this in the, in the poetry sense of the word, not saints or, or scholars, um, because there were, there were many great between them. But just on the poet timeline, now you have almost 500 years of a gap yeah. in Persian poetry anyway. And then Mirza Walib comes along and he's his patron again is a is a rich uh, um, is, a, is a rich is a rich man in in that region. And he's very much like Hafiz in, in a way because Walib doesn't follow the same semantics and the same stuff as as Mulana Rumi. There's not gonna there's not gonna be a Mulana Rumi again. There's no yeah. there's not gonna be a Saadi again. You reflect really on I think the the, the time that you're born in. So Mirza right. Walib represents the community he's born into, and so he's born into a time where that the British Raj is you know it's it's in power. It's, there's a humiliation being felt for the Muslims in our region. Poetry is still very much alive. You have mahfils, and so people get together. Right. That tradition has continued, although it's declined. And now I think you can almost do a study of why the Iranian tradition declined and why the Indian tradition was blossoming. Um, so around that time, right now, you've got the you've you've kind of near the end of the Safavids. Now you've got the Zand dynasty, mm-hmm. I think, close by now. And well, no, no, sorry, this is the Qajari period now. Right. Yeah. So this is, and the, so the the tradition of Europeanism is kind of entered Iran but yet the British ruling India hasn't really wiped away the the poetry yet so Mirza Walib is famous I don't know too much about him so if someone knows more please correct me but mm-hmm. I believe his his tradition was similar to was Hafiz in a way because although he was very much a Muslim he wasn't ashamed of calling out the religious hypocrisy of that time mm-hmm. he was famous for writing poetry for uh, for a dancer that he fell in love with really wow. and 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 he would sell poetry to to earn so he wasn't working, you know. He's, he had a family. He, I think he had a son, and they were in extreme poverty. So when he lost his patron, he had nowhere to go. Wow. And he was he was literally selling his lines to earn money to buy bread and food wow. for his family, and and then eventually fell in love with a dancer. Where you know things changed and it became a bit of a scandal. Wow. But he didn't really care. And this dancer fell in love with him madly, and she loved his poetry and she would recite it. But this is the Urdu poetry now. This isn't the Persian right, poetry. Exactly. Um, it's an and and this is the, and this is the sad thing. So I, I was trying to find some of his Persian poetry to read for this podcast, and and I think you you found actually you did a better job than I did because what I 
what I came across was a little more interesting was was discussion on his Persian poetry, and oh, really? and, the, and the and the and the narrative currently you know the narrative currently is he was a horrible Persian poet he didn't understand Persian really he was more speaking Indian Persian with a dialect and his words were either bastardized from That's Persian to Hindi, and uh, he he really was just a, a pretender you know he wasn't really he was trying to look Who was like that elitist. Online? Man, these are these are these are your Indian nationalists now who that's what I figured Islam. would be saying that. So one thing that's uh, interesting to consider is that so Persian uh, poetry enters South Asia, and South Asians uh, take take the mantle, so to speak, and they're they're learning Persian. I mean, just from a numerous point of view, more commonly than in Iran, and there's more manuscripts being produced and more poets being produced in South Asia. I mean, there's so many Persian poets in South Asia that many of them are just nameless. They're lost in the sea of how many people there are. But anyway, they're they're mostly writing in Persian, as you noted, and and as far as I've seen, their Persian is sounds it's, it's correct linguistically. It has its own style that we call Sapkehindi, which there's some debate about how as to how valid the the stylistic classifications are. But Qalib, I mean, I'm I'm looking at a manuscript. So unfortunately, they're, they're, his work isn't on the internet the way like Hafiz and Sadi you can find all of their work typed out, Qalib and stuff because sadly there's just not enough interest or institutional support. All you can find online are some of his stuff typed out, but there's no com there's no complete like D1 typed out. You you can find scans of old manuscripts, but it, it's just like not it, it's just hard to read them. They're they're very old, they're they're bunched together, the quality is low, but, but I'm just like reading through uh some work right now. Like he has a poem, I guess, I think in Persian. It says Radifa Tazi, Radifa Farsi. So I guess he has poems in uh in both Arabic and Persian, but it's just difficult. There's not enough institutional support, which is why we talk about patrons. We really need some sort of government or a huge, you know, grassroots support to get this work documented, to get it on Ganjur so that average people can read it. You know, see, I'm trying to make sense of this manuscript. I sent you three different ones. They're just so old and poorly formatted. I mean, compared to what we're used to reading. So it's just hard to make sense of and really benefit from this treasure chest of poetry that we have it's it's really a shame that we can't get institutional support and and uh, patronage behind this stuff so I, I should explain patronage was essentially a system we've talked about a lot where i mean up till up till essentially the collapse of the muslim empires where sultans and, and rich people you know men of letters would uh would pay poets essentially for their work and now that that system doesn't exist so there's we don't have as much cultural output and we've really culturally declined because we don't have the excess time and resources to fund our geniuses. You know, our geniuses have to go to the West and, and become engineers and doctors and stuff. And then they're so exhausted at the end of the day, of course, they're not going to sit down and, you know, uh, work through Ghalib's manuscript and digitize it. So it's, it's hard to even access, you know, this treasure trove that we have. But you mentioned Urdu. I think we should we should kind of talk about uh, the development of Urdu vis-a-vis Persian poetry because it's such an interesting topic. It's a. It's interesting. It's also controversial. It always Very drives people to pick sides, right? It's right. Exactly. Um, so you were you were telling me something before we started recording. Um, the or, the origination of of Urdu. Yeah. So tell me what tell me what you've heard, and I'll tell you what so, I know. So I've heard many stories. The one that seems more believable to me is that essentially we have kind of this language that we can vaguely call it Hindustani, which it's like a Sanskrit descendant, and. Uh, it's spoken by people all over the subcontinent. Like any language, it has dialects, but it's more or less similar to where people can speak it. And then what happens is Persians start to arrive in South Asia, 
And I, I don't want to back up any, oh, they're invaders narratives. You know, people migrate. There's just migrations. Persians invaders. Sl- slowly start to uh, come into South Asia for various reasons, you know, as people move around. And they become part and parcel of South Asia. And we can see the evidence of that today. And they speak their Persian language. But, of course, they're going to learn the native language. And some mixing happens just in the same way that you're in the U.K., I'm sure that British Pakistanis have a, a specific way of speaking English that's distinct to them. And, and in America, Arab Americans have a way of speaking that's distinct to them. So the Persians who are becoming Indianized or becoming you know, assimilated and localized, they start speaking Persian, but it becomes every generation becomes increasingly Indian. So it becomes mixed with Hindustani. And then they start writing Hindustani in Persian. So you can find Ghalib on the Internet, for example, written in both you know, the, Sans- the Sanskrit uh, evolved writing and also the Arabic evolved writing, what we call Nasta'aliq. So they start speaking a mix of Indian and or Indian languages. We just call them Hindustani and Persian. And they also start writing it in Persian. But then the vocab starts to get mixed in. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a few hundred years emerges this language that now today we would call Urdu, where it's just like a blend of South Asian languages Primarily, you know, the Sanskrit descended ones and also Arabic and Persian, but mostly really Persian influencing Hindi, as we would call it today. And this language, as I understand it, was called Zabane Urdu Mu'alla, which means the language of the exalted camp, which, of course, you know, the speakers of the language would call it that. And that was a reference to kind of the city uh, Muslims of Persian origin who, you know, considered themselves to be high society people. So they considered themselves to be speaking the language of the exalted camp. And nowadays we just call it Urdu, which means camp. And in modern Persian, it literally means camp. Like you could say, you know, my little cousin's on a school Urdu. He's, he's going on a camping trip. But in that sense, it, it meant camp in the sense of like a group, like, you know, my camp, your camp. So that's my understanding that's of how Urdu yeah, no, arrived. That's- that's pretty good. I I think no. Yeah. I think that's. I think you've. I think you've covered most of it. I and, and I've I've read about the 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 yeah. roots of the word Urdu as well and the word camp. I think I've read um, versions where it's been traced to a um, like an army camp, like a yeah, like a might have been, or, yeah. or so they um, they moved as camps. You know, they migrated as like a caravan. So it was yeah. the language of of that caravan of Persian Muslims who were arriving from Central Asia into South Asia. But what makes Urdu really unique compared to almost any language in the world is that it was dis- it was developed and made distinct from Hindustani, or it was maybe, this is like the wrong word, but we could say invented as a language by poetry. So what, when you really start to see, you know, Urdu is, is being thought of separate from, you know, Hindustani or Hindi, is when people like Ghalib start to write poetry and they use, you know, Persian Arabic vocabulary and a different script. So Urdu, uh, and this is what I've heard again, I'm not an expert, uh, this is like a layman's understanding, was, but was really developed by poets. And it came, you know, it evolved side by side with the poetic tradition. Whereas other languages, like, I can, you can name any language, you know, that wasn't the case. But that's why, you know, Urdu, it almost seems like when you say that word, you're thinking poetry. Like, it seems like, you know, many people in South Asia learn Urdu just to access the Qawalis and the poems and the Bollywood songs and, and things like that. It's, it seems like a language where it really is just known for its poetic tradition. As someone who appreciates poetry, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's an interesting observation. I, th- I think the, the origin story, I think, is difficult to pin down. But I think what you've said so far, it's just, it sounds like a really feasible you know, way, of, way of understanding mm-hmm. how it came about. Because I think you, earlier you mentioned something about the poetry and how it's a language of poetry. And and I've so I've I've come across people who who dispel a lot of those 
arguments and say, you know, Urdu, Urdu A should be cleansed or, or Hindi should be cleansed of the Persian influence oh, yeah. and Arabic influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is a growing movement to... And but for me, the way I see Urdu is it's just essentially it's a Creole language. It's it's a you know a combination of Turkish, Arabic, and Persian and Sanskrit. It does the job. It's a beautiful language, and you couldn't. And so we'll come to Iqbal in a second. But this is this is the reason people like Iqbal, although they spoke Urdu fluently, and you know his his mother tongue was was Urdu as well he he preferred to use farsi and and mm-hmm. and the reason for that was the depth of farsi because it's a much older language with a much richer vocabulary and mm-hmm. um and 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 the, and the syntax of it the way it just lent him more depth to say things which he couldn't do in urdu That's and true. so a lot of people criticize people like iqbal and say well why did he choose farsi when he could easily have expressed himself in urdu if walib did it and we know iqbal praises walib constantly why wouldn't people um, prefer to use the sub sub you know the subcontinent languages whether it's uh, Punjabi or or, or, mm-hmm. or you know Sanskrit why go to Persian but anyway so Persian spilled in and now you've got people like Walid writing poetry yeah and then and then you come to 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 Muhammad Iqbal and and this man in in my understanding and he's by the way did you did you know of Iqbal before you so I don't I don't know how many people you've met from the sub subcontinent but before you if you could pinpoint, when was the first time you heard of Muhammad Iqbal? Okay, that's uh, so I'll answer that, but I'd like to add something quick to the Urdu discussion. I think you mentioned it's a mix of Turkish, Persian, Arabic, Sanskrit. I think it's a metaphor for really the richness of the Muslim world, this language that has emerged from all these groups mixing and like all the other things we appreciate. It's just emerging from us mixing. But anyway, um, I think that Iqbal, the first time I heard about him, was actually when I began the poetry page. Again, when I began it, so I should explain. When I began this page, it wasn't a big deal to me. I had translated some poems from my friends here and there who were Arabs who appreciated Persian poetry and wanted to know more. And I figured, you know, I'm, I'm sending all these these things in this group chat. I might as well just post them on this Instagram page so that anyone can see them. And that was it. It wasn't a big deal. It was like a poem here or there. If I've archived a lot of these old posts, but if I go back, I can maybe I posted like one every three weeks or something. But then it started to get picked up a bit, and I noticed that mostly South Asians were picking it up. And I, I mentioned this earlier to mentioned this to you earlier today that the majority of my fans are still South Asians. And then some guy said, "Can you translate Iqbal?" And you know me, I, I might have been I don't know this might have been twenty or nineteen at the time. So it was like four years ago. I said, "You know who is Iqbal?" And he says, "You don't know Iqbal." So I went to Ganjur and I found him and I started reading his poetry. I was like, "Wow, there's this guy. It's like a modern poet, like in the classical tradition." as far as his style is concerned, but he's writing about modern issues. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought his, you know, his experiences of being a Muslim guy, but living in the West and being kind of confused, not knowing where to stand or, or just kind of frustrated with the state of the world, that really spoke to me. And I really liked that he used Persian. I mean, he did write in Urdu as well, but I think he writes Persian for a couple reasons. One is that he sees himself as a disciple of Maulana Rumi, which, which he was, not that he just saw himself. But he also, I think, wanted to touch that to that tradition. So he was all about the traditions of the Muslim world and, and you know, Muslim, the Muslim world rising again. So maybe to him, writing in Persian was hearkening back to that age-old tradition of South Asians writing in Persian. Yeah, yeah. What do you? What? So have you? Have you? How much of his work have you read? Or if, or if not enough, not sadly, en- you know, I've I've mostly been uh, consumed with trying to work on Hafiz and also respond to the requests. So a lot of the posts that I post these days on my page are things that people actually direct message me. Um, I just don't have the time to, to find posts. So thankfully people 
send stuff. And then if I have free time, I'm translating Hafez. Again, I really need to, to dig back into Iqbal, especially considering so many of the people who are, are following me are of South Asian origin and they really love his poetry. But uh, I, ha you know, his poetry is hard to get into because unlike the other poets who have a divan, so example, I can ha open Hafez's divan. Uh, I can just go to any ghazal and read it and call it a day. I can do the same with, with many other poets. Iqbal didn't, doesn't have a divan in the traditional sense. He has about one, two, three, four, five, six. He has like seven books. So you can't just like open a page of a random divan and read a ghazal and enjoy it. You have to read the book. So he has Esrara mm. Khodi, The Secrets of the Self. I can't open Esrara Khodi and just pick like po poem 20 and uh, read it. You know, it's a long, it's a, it's a book. It's a work. One flows from the other. So, you know, you need to take a lot of time to dive in. And I just haven't had the time so far to, to, to devote to yeah. that, unfortunately. But I, I it's interesting. Future, inshallah. It's interesting you mentioned the, his his um, his special teacher to be Rumi in one of his, um, in Israr e Khudi, which, which he considered to be his own, his own Dewan or his Matnavi. Awesome. Um, and so he, he, actually, he actually says, inspired by the genius of the master of Rum, I rehearsed the sealed book of secret lore. His soul is a flaming furnace. I am but as a spark that gleams for a moment. Wow. His burning candle consumed me. I the moth. His wine overwhelmed my goblet. Um, so, and then it's, and then actually just one final line. He says, The master of room transmute, transmuted my earth to gold and set my ashes aflame. A lot of people don't know this, but Iqbal was 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 absolutely fanatic and mad about Molana Rumi. Yeah, he, he and, opens the Khodi with quoting Rumi. Yeah, and, and this is just, this always baffles my mind that we we celebrate Iqbal so much, but we don't we don't really think about where his roots are, and his Persian roots are so, so strong. And you can't blame him for using Persian other than Urdu, because he, A, he loves Athar, and then, and then, and then, um, and then Malana Rumi, but his influence goes way into Europe, which we talk about as well with, with Gertha and, and other poets. But this is it. This is why he chose Farsi. He he felt it expressed him, and it made sense, like you said, because he's mm -hmm. he's following on from the tradition of Malana Rumi. To his heritage, yeah. Um, yeah. I I think I don't know. I feel like I, there was something to add about Iqbal. Um, and then so his, so Israr Khudi, which is which is his his Dewan, as he some call it, was is is incredible. It's 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 worth picking up if if you haven't if no one's hasn't read it. You can get a really good translation on on Amazon. Offered and you, and you can see the influences of, of the Persian in him directly, but he appeals to a lot of people because mm -hmm. he started the whole revivalism of of Islam through his poetry, which was not for entertainment's sake. He mm -hmm. he thought it really really had a purpose yeah. behind his poetry, and like like people like Molana Rumi, these people were not were not writing to entertain people for courts. Right. Of course, you had people like Hafiz who had patrons, and he just wanted to make them laugh and. Yeah, and, yeah. and and be and be respected as a as a master weaver of words. You had that element always, but with people like Iqbal, he I don't think he even liked the title of being called a poet because it carried a certain European connotation. Because mm. poets in Europe stopped a long time ago using poetry to express, um, you know, whether that was religious poetry to to discuss it, your own spiritual mm -hmm. state, or displacement with 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 whatever was around you. It stopped, you know, after yeah. people like. Um, I guess I guess people like Shakespeare and and um, um, Goethe and you know you 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 don't have that anymore in, in poetry. Now you have a very light, mm -hmm. um, very very basic understanding of how poetry is used to express yourself. Mm -hmm. 
There was something I wanted to read by Iqbal. Okay, so I'm going to read and tell me if I if I butcher the pronunciation because my Farsi pronunciation is going to be a mix of Isfahani no, and, and a mix of um, British. So just give me a second. What, do a you know really what, uh, what, what like work it's from or something? Or? Yeah, this is from... Um, this is this is a good question. So from his Farsi books, so he's written I think he's written four seven Farsi books. So yeah. he's got um this is I think this is from uh Piyame Mashrik. So it matches from the East. And Do you know he considered himself a poet of these. He has about oh my god, he has like hundreds of poems in this one. Wow. Yeah, I'll you know what, I'll send you the full thing. But I'm, there's sure. there's this this is too much to go into. Sure. I feel like we could do a whole session just on Iqbal. Yeah, I think people would really, really hours. enjoy that. Um, but this is but this is this is just explaining the, the similarities between him and Milana Rumi, which I think are mm-hmm. kind of relevant based on what we're talking about. Dileman Roshan as Suz Derunast, Jahan bin Chashmeman as Ishk Hunast, Zeramaz Zindagi Begane Torbad Kisiko Ishk Ragoid Jununast. So he says. My heart is lit up by an inner flame. Tears of blood lend my eyes a cosmic frame. May he stray further from life's mystery. Who thinks that madness is love's another name? Wow. His stuff is is just it just resonates so much if you understand the wider poetry Persian poetry framework. Mm-hmm. Outside of it, it's really hard to grapple with with what he's trying to express in himself, and and the struggle that he was that he was and he constantly uses elements of fire and burning and and flame being a moth or or a candle, these these directly directly linked to the Masnavi Matnavi of Molana Rumi, mm-hmm. um, but but that's you know I posted one of his stories the other day on his poetry on on Shikwa and Jawab Shikwa and 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 that's why he's so relevant today. So he's in my in my view he's a, he's the last great Persian poet. There's still there's still a lot of poetry mm-hmm. that's big in Iran now. People are still writing poetry, right? Um, but in terms of global influence, you no longer transcend the Absolutely. borders of Iran yeah, with his poets. Definitely, you're right. The, and the, uh, an issue with modern poetry, in my opinion, is other than some people like Shahriyar, people have really divorced themselves from our tradition. You don't see them quoting Hafez. You don't see them writing Ghazals. They write uh, kind of like a Rupi Kaur style of poetry, almost in Persian. Is it more? And, is it more free verse, or is it still following yeah, some it's, structure? It's free verse. Right? There's no structure. There's almost no rhyme. And like you said, it doesn't have any pan-Islamic or global appeal. And there's no deep thoughts like you find in Iqbal and, and Hafiz and Rumi. It's kind of just more love poetry. I mean, some of it is nice, but I just don't find it as meaningful or as international. It's it's almost, uh, I don't know, it's almost like the tradition has died. Uh, it's very sad to say that, but I, there's no one really in modern Iran who is, is working in the style of the people we've seen. And, you know, that's just part of life. Eras come and go. It's it's hard to re- you can never reproduce someone like a Rumi. So the era we live in is is different, for better or for worse. So, yeah, that's 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 absolutely true. I think there's an acceptance that it's just a period of maybe decline in some way. You know, the, the person the person whose name I heard very often when I was in living in Iran was was uh, Ahmed Shamlu. Now yeah, he is a famous. He's, poet, so have you are you familiar with his work? A bit. I, I read a few of his poems. I know that he was kind of politically inclined in a way. But he also wrote so, in free verse. Why? Why? Is, so I don't know much about him. I've read some of his work, but I couldn't couldn't really understand his his popularity today. D- just in a ten second. 
explanation for people who don't know Ahmed Shamlu. He's you know he's the name on every teenager's mouth now. When you know if you if you mm-hmm. go, people like to quote him the way we do in the West. We quote I think some of the musicians, the rap stars. Shamlu mm-hmm. is a little bit higher than that, but he's kind of like you know yeah I read poetry. I know Shamlu, and this is how I was introduced to him in his Fahan. And I was like, this is interesting. I I don't know who this guy is, but he's 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 considered very very important to the last hundred years of Persian poetry. Yeah, isn't definitely. It? So um, Shamlu and Nima Yashu, I think it's Yushij, or I, I can't quite remember how his, uh, let, me, let me look up his name. Yushij, wow, that's an that's a interesting name. And, and a few other people are kind of considered the modern Iranian poets. Um, there's also Furuga Farrokhzad, who is a, a, a female poet who died, and then um, Simin Behbahani. There's like four or five really famous modern Iranian poets. They all write with kind of a new style it's called shit i know that it some of it has wazen like rhythm but it doesn't necessarily follow a rhyme scheme or any type of um poetic meter again shahriyar is another famous poet who writes in ghazal simin behbani i think had ghazal but shamlu kind of writes free form these people are, are famous because they speak to again the modern issues so we're living in, in kind of a modern secularized world that's that's post-spiritual in a lot of ways so these people i mean they definitely have spiritual uh, influences in them they are persian poets but they're kind of writing to a modern experience and that connects more to people. And also the, the ghazal, to some people, it's considered kind of old and, and overdone and difficult to parse through versus these modern poets. It's definitely easier for the average, not necessarily poetry-inclined person to work through them and connect to it. I haven't read enough of his poetry to be able to tell you more than kind of like that general glance, but um, he's definitely one of the more famous modern poets. I think he passed away not too long ago. Yeah, I think about 2000, yeah, 20 years ago. Um you know there's there's um I think I think that pretty much sums it up. I think these are the great Persian poets that I would have if someone asked me to list right. them, I would list these guys. There's obviously more. The list is huge, but I think like you said there's a lot of imitators in between who are who are just following the the, the formula hoping that they get that fame. Right. But 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 this the beauty of the ghazal is because it started in the Arabic region and moved into the Persian and then into the Hindi region, it hasn't died. It has, the flame is still lit. So right. now, now the Indian sub Indian subcontinent is is now responsible for continuing this legacy, and and it's not it's not dying. One of there's a there's a poet by the name of Aga Shahid Ali. He's an he's an Indian uh, American Kashmiri poet, and he his work, um, he he actually writes words in English, which if you can no imagine, and and he's done a he's done a reasonably reasonably good job. And and he died, I think, not too long ago as well. Oh, and, and and the st- stuff is really good. I I'll I'll post something on my Instagram about this guy. But to find to find Wazels now in English, it only really started becoming a thing in the early nineties. And I find that I find that quite interesting. And whilst I was researching for this podcast, I found that apparently they found examples of early Wazels from the eleventh century in Spain, which were in Hebrew. No way um, wow. and Arabic. So you can imagine, you know, this this idea. Just imagine, like Muslim Spain, and you have a ghazal which is which is started from Al Qais, the father of Arabic poetry, now all the way into Hebrew and Spain. Wow! And the, and, and, and for so people who don't Jewish, understand, Jewish Spanish people writing. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. So the Jews, you know, as, as some of you might know, were essentially held some of the highest positions in the land under the Umayyad dynasties in in Spain. And so these Jews were essentially, other than being, other than being, you know, like a sultan or or a, or a, or a caliph, they could be the the number two guy. And then you had poets and physicians. I think one of Salahuddin's 
um, top physician was a Jewish guy. Anyway, but the point is, you found Hebrew wazal, and the reason this is impressive is not because Jews write poetry, of course, everybody writes poetry, is is for you to take a Arabic, Persian, um, a metering system, a syllable system, and the way you structure the, po- the poem and write in Hebrew, that takes, you know, that ta- that's incredible. Um, wow. So I'm going to read a couple of lines from this guy. I think we've gone over, this is a long podcast, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting discussion. Um, and just pay pay attention to the structure because you you write now right so you understand the structure of how the rhyme, yes. um, and and uh, and how the matla and the kafi and and the and the radif work. So listen listen to this just a few lines. Mughal ceilings let your mirrored convexities multiply me at once under your spell tonight. He's freed some fire from ice in pity for heaven. He's left open for God the doors of hell tonight, in the heart's vain temple. All statues have been smashed. No priest in saffron's left to all is knelt tonight. God, limit this punishment. There's still judgment day. I'm a mere sinner. I'm no infant I'm no infidel tonight. And I, Shaheed, and this is him now referring to himself, right? This is this is it. This is the last poem. And I, Shaheed, only am escaped to tell thee. God sobs in my arms. Call me Ismail tonight. Wow. And the whole poem has the elements of you have religious vision, you have uh, visual, uh, religious um, visualization of the stories of Ismail, Elijah, Ibrahim, and then you have the structure of the Persian was to the point in the English, and wow. it's about I think it's about fifteen, uh, one two, yeah, it's about fifteen um, uh, couplets as well. So he's, he's really he's really tried to do this, and there's a whole book in English of his poetry, and and, and this is the end of my. My adventure with Persian poetry and the so Ghazal. I googled it. I it's think... called "Call Me Ishmael Tonight: A Book of Ghazals." There you wow. go. I think it's on Amazon. Um, it's incredible. So we've seen incredible. the migration of this form from <clears throat> pre-Islamic Arabia to Persia to South Asia, and then a man from South Asia goes to America, and then it transfers into English. So the newest frontier of the Ghazal form. Yes, Subhanallah. That's it's a it's an element of celebration that I think people don't truly embrace because at today's, you're a poet, you write, you understand this concept that we celebrate and we we like to revive a lot of religious elements of our faith and the and say focus on our you know the the Sharia. That's important. I always say, you know, in my in my prayers in my daily prayers, one of the things I always pray for is, is is one of the prayers of Prophet Musa. Which is, you know, when he had to go speak to the Pharaoh, he he was worried he wouldn't have the confidence and the tongue and the eloquence, yeah. and and one of the one of the things he says to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is, is to give him, um, expand his chest and give him the eloquence of the tongue so he could so he could be eloquent and and and, and you know, and persuade what his message was. So I think as Muslims we need to remember that right. the ability to be creative and 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 to pray for creativity in the way we express our faith, in every way it's it's a really important element. And and we've expressed this in side by side with our scholars and saints. We need each other to to deliver this message of of the truth, of Islam. And so right. the wazal started from the Qasida and then now it's ended up in the English English world. And in English, yeah. And and it works. It still works. It still yeah. it still delivers that that punch to the chest. You know, when you hear that line rhyme, the sec- and the second couplet comes and it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm in love the, with it. These poems are are some of the best parts of our tradition. If you look at the way Muslims are appreciated the most in the West, it's people like Hafiz, Rumi, Saadi. So I think we've really shined on a global scale with 
this history of poetry and it would be a shame if we weren't good custodians if we let it die uh, on the opposite end you know if we help it flourish and help it uh, or help revive it then we can maybe hold our heads up once more uh, for this you know this tradition that we have couldn't agree with you more I, I think I think you're doing a you're doing a beautiful job in, in what you do so in terms of we've been reading some of your poetry today and I know I've asked you before and it seems like a far away far away concept but you're translating the entire um, works of well of, of, of Hafiz when can we see part one part two and part All three right. part four so this is I've been thinking about this a lot the issue is the the extent of Hafiz's divan. It's very large. He has about five hundred fifty poems altogether, and if I even were to work at the pace of one poem a day, which in order to do that I'd have to be working full time, so I, I need a medieval patron basically. That would take <laughs> that would take approximately two years to complete. Uh, at the current pace, it's pretty far away. Although if I am able to break it up, maybe for example, a hundred ghazals would be released, so there'd be five parts of it. You know. Every book would have approximately 100 poems. That could be that could be not so distant. So I think I have about 30 poems translated. That that wouldn't be very distant with this whole Corona thing going on. I have more time to focus on on poetry and things like that. But you know, inshallah, maybe I, I'm hoping that at least by 2021, part one could be released. I know that seems like a long time inshallah. away, inshallah. But uh, you know, for now, I'm posting things on my page, and then people who are Patreon supporters can get access to the poems so that they don't have to wait until that time to see them all at once. Wait, you're on Patreon? You're on Patreon? Is that what you said? Yeah, so I my page is at Persian Poetics on Instagram and I have the Patreon link in the bio. So people who join Patreon get some sneak peeks. They get access to some uh, Hafez uh, shah or explanations. And I also uh, drop some of the poems from the Divan as I go along to people who are Patreon supporters so they can see the Divan uh, in pre-production, let's say, before it's released as a, as a book that anyone can have access to. I highly recommend you guys You're listening to, to do that. Your work is, your work is, is excellent. It's not, it's not just because we're friends. So you have, Absolutely. so you don't have one patron. You have many patrons, inshallah. This is, this is inshallah, a, inshallah. again, this is a interesting um, development in how we, how we fund and support mm-hmm. poets. So inshallah, that goes well for you. Thank you. I think that's it. I think I'm done. I think we've reached the yeah, two hour mark almost. Two hours, yeah. Wow. <laughs> This is an in-depth conversation. And I feel like we could go on because you know what we didn't touch was the, was the Arabic poetry and how Arabic yeah. poetry developed that, into... That could be another two hours. Um, I think we need to get someone who's an Arab poet unless sure, you're also yeah. a master in that. Um, you're too now. You're okay. Too, yeah, we need someone, yeah. So I think we can call this, we can call this uh, a podcast <laughs> right at the two-hour mark. I think I think people have time now. I think there's nothing else to do but read right. our poetry and listen to our podcast. <laughs> and sh- All right, and I would like well. to say, so you mentioned what I'm up to. I'd like to say that uh, our brother Zerar, I don't, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Zerar? Yeah, that's right. So Zerar on Instagram, he's a great photographer who's covering the, the Muslim world. So this is for my followers who might not have necessarily seen you. He's covering the Muslim world and he's trying to basically go against, from, from why I see you can definitely correct me, go against this Western uh, gaze that has captured us in, in such an unfair way that has fetishized us and seen us from an Orientalist light. He's trying to look at us from an authentic light, you know, some, one of us capturing us, so to speak. And, you know, Alhamdulillah, mashallah, he's been all over the Muslim world and, you know, he's still planning to travel. I don't know what this Corona thing, how that's going to work, but he, he does tours. He was going to go to Iran and he's, he's been already with a tour, I think you mentioned. And he's also a poet, so he has, he has a great book out that uh, I've had the pleasure to read. And once I'm done, I'm definitely going to be introducing it to you guys from my page 
but you need to definitely uh, check it out. You can, if you could talk about it just for a minute, I'll let you do the talking about your own thing just before we wrap up. Yeah. So the book is titled In Rap. This was this is my first book. I'm working on another one, inshallah. The, the the book in rap essentially is a, it's a religious confession of of sorts. It's um it's a conversation, it's a book in conversation started as a prose and it turned into something longer and essentially it's conversations with the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and and the point is what would you say to the, the beloved Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam if you met him today, and the book is is my unveiling of my of of humanity in the last fourteen hundred years. Essentially that's what it is. Is to say who we are, what we've done, what we've what we've come to. And what we need today, and there's some, there's some. It's, it's in a way, it's my first divan, and and it's a very amateur attempt. I don't, no, no, I don't, don't think it's that, that he's, great. He's being too but humble. I think, I think it's a, it's a very, it's, it's different. It has photography, so it's got his photography from Mecca and Medina, and as well as his poetry. And I think yeah, it's really so, refreshing so, to see that to see a Muslim poet, but not in in this uh, this lame style that that has recently become very popular, but in like a, a genuine poetic sense. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. So that's my book, and and the rest of my work is me pretty much getting angry most days at the Western media. But and I really love those it. as well. I really like that as well. And but you know that's important and with poetry as well because our poetry has been culturally appropriated so much that right. we need people to who understand the poetry to to come back and 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 just just wake each other up and say this is what's happening to our poetry as well as our people. That's that's the kind of stuff that keeps me that keeps me going. Mm-hmm. That's me. Thank you so much All for right. those kind words. Thank you so much. It was great taking this time to talk to you. Inshallah, there will be more of these, but uh, this was a first and I really liked it. Perfect. Okay. Inshallah, right. I'll speak to you. Speak to some Inshallah. brother. It was nice talking to you. Hold on,